Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. When we first saw these films, like Red Shoes or Matter of Life and Death, which was retitled Stairway to Heaven in America, because right after the war, they didn't want to use the word death in the, in the title. The uh, interesting thing was that uh, we had never seen a credit like this, written, produced, and directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. And so myself and my friends, when we started to realize we all liked these films, we knew that there was something special going on, and we sort of sought each other out. And we said, oh, you like that one too. And uh, uh, yeah, I found out not only it was, it was a range of people from... My uh, close associate of mine, Jay Cox, who was a um, Time Magazine movie reviewer at the time, uh, to Francis Coppola, to Steven Spielberg, all of us had had uh, some association to instances of the Paul Pressburger pictures on television, in black and white, re-edited, including Black Narcissus, for example. All these pictures were shown in truncated forms, and we knew there were pieces of films around, lying scattered about. <laughs> and we couldn't, we couldn't put it together, you know? Uh, we knew that this one with the nuns in the Himalayas there's something about the way it looks in black and white that we could tell at the time that very often a black and white print of a very, very highly fashioned technicolor picture looked a certain way. Uh, the makeup on the actors looked different. You knew something was off. You said, there's something not quite right here. This isn't the full version. We knew of uh, David Lean. We knew of Carol Reed. We knew, of, of course, the great Hitchcock coming out of the 1930s out of England. But who were Powell and Pressburger? They were a mystery to us. And why did they take a credit like that on one card? And what did they do? How do they divide up the writing and the producing and directing? So in a way, it became kind of mythical. At one point, we even thought that maybe there were pseudonyms for other people in the industry because there's nothing written about them. Nothing that we could find anyway in America. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo goes British, as it begins a recurring dive into a world where fantasy and reality can blend as easily as they can be contrasted. A world where mood overwhelms your soul. A world where concerns of the heart and head are not as far apart as the world may seem it to be. Yes, this is but a sample of what you'll find find as the review meets the archers with tonight's presentation of Powell and Pressburger's 1946 film A Matter of Life and Death. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Who are you? We should have met yesterday at 0410, mon cher. Unfortunately, I missed you. Well, you couldn't have missed me because I wasn't here. Now, who the- I bring you a message from Mr. Trubshaw. Bob? Bob's dead. Oh, yes, he's dead. He says, what ho? Well, that sounds like Trubshaw. But he is dead, isn't he? En effet. But how? Why? Cannon shell. And what should happen to a man who jumps from his aircraft without his parachute? 
How do you know? But it is I who am telling you, my friend. It is I. Your time was up. But they missed you because of your ridiculous English climate. I am French. But what do you want now? You, my friend. What for? To conduct you. Where to? To the training center. Training for what? For another world. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Years before its eventual production, the Archers were approached by the wartime Ministry of Information to concoct a film that would serve as a bridge to the future of U.S. and Britain's relations in a post-war world. What would they concoct? Well, it would end up being timed perfectly for the very intent that the Ministry of Information had intended, as Powell and Pressburger put together a picture that saw the return of a long-absent British star, the rise of an up-and-coming American actress, and the beauty of Technicolor that can be found when you put Jack... Ca- <laughs> The, be- the beauty that Technicolor can have when you put Jack goddamn legend Cardiff behind the camera. What was the film successful in achieving then, and what does it still achieve to this day? Well, the Ballyhoo can't discuss matters of the head and, ha- head and heart alone. We must have some company discussing such heavy issues. Here to help us carry the load is a writer and director and a return Ballyhoo buddy whose discussion of all matters on David Lean was an initial gateway into the Ballyhoo's talk of British filmmakers that were not Hitchcock. His current release, Antlers, a multi-part web series, can be found on YouTube, while he can be right now found in front of a computer, ready to discuss The Archers. Please welcome back to the show, Mr. John Strelick. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Welcome, buddy. You you had quite a Ballyhoo debut talking about summertime. I had no idea that that would be a huge huge discussion point for the show like because I didn't realize that the sh- I was not aware of the film as you know. You introduced it to me. Mm-hmm. The reception to it was baffling. I was like wow so th- this movie must be popular and I was just living in a hole under the ground. <laughs> People love it? I guess so. Like it, it got I'm not one for ratings. But sometimes I will text people and be like, hey, man, you're, you're doing really good. Uh, yours for a while was the second most downloaded episode of this show. <laughs> That's so fun. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. what's what's not to love about Summertime, you know? Well, it, it's got David Lean. It's got exotic locations. It's got Catherine Hepburn. And it's so, got wonderful Technicolor. Well, if wonderful Technicolor, but arguably... Arguably not as beautiful as the film we're going to talk about today. Like it's 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 a hard comparison. I think the summertime does look beautiful. <laughs> I think you are right. <laughs> Subjectively, it's also it's yeah, <laughs> absolutely better looking. Subjectively, but also, but also, are we cheating when we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, a big part of that would be. Uh, um, summertime was filmed almost entirely on location mm-hmm. with the giant yeah. Technicolor camera that kind of uh, limits you in ways that I don't think Pal and Pressburger were necessarily dealing with with our movie tonight. No, though. No. And in addition to that, there was the... We had Jack Hildyard shooting Summertime. We have Jack Cardiff over here. The War of the and, Jacks. Yeah, the War of the, <laughs> the Dueling Jacks. I say it's the Dueling Jacks. <laughs> On God, I say. Which Jack no, do you your, prefer? Your, your canvas is not as good as my canvas. How dare you? <laughs> 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 oh, 
Um, really quickly, though, before we get into talks of Cardiff, Powell, Pressburger, and Niven, and Hunter, and, <laughs> and everybody, and Attenborough, Attenborough too, Ooh. we'll talk about him. Um, uh, but you, you have a, you have been been busy since our last conversation, and the only reason I know about this is because I've technically been part of it. So in the in the grand scheme, technically, technically in the grand scheme of being fully transparent, long long before Ballyhoo days, long before Gunther days, long before Shamley days, you were making a movie. You were making you were making an independent film in Colorado called Antlers, and it is now a web series and a well received web series uh, from all indication. And thank you. Um, I was an actor in this. <laughs> yes, you were. <laughs> yeah, I uh, played the part of Lloyd. <laughs> in Indeed. This, uh, um, tell tell the Ballyhoo audience who may not have caught up yet on Antlers, um, which if you haven't, guys, I've been posting about it for the past three weeks now, like, you know, a- as of now. So, like, by the time <laughs> you hear this, it will be June, and you guys need to just get on this because it's two months too late already. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but do tell people about antlers because at this point everything will have been revealed so now the spoilers uh, can come out if you want but <laughs> i would rather you wonderful. keep it to people you know <laughs> wonderful yeah well uh antlers is the story of a group of um young friends who are uh, all sort of at a, a, a lost point in their life um and they get visited by a uh sort of entity a, a, mm-hmm. a, a sort of deity in a way it comes down from the mountains this this being with antlers um and uh and he kind of puppet masters some orchestrates some uh circumstances that help them better understand themselves and maybe where they'd like to go in the future yeah. so um that's that's the gist of it you said this is coming out in june uh, roughly, I think of a, a late May, early June. Late May, early June. Uh, All right, yeah, yeah just so because of the backlog. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're uh, releasing it um, every Thursday through April, so uh, on YouTube. So it, it it'll it'll have its home there for the foreseeable future, as long as technology mm-hmm. uh, holds up, I guess. Um, so you can well, see you said that now, and now Skynet's going to happen. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, John. <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll be spared. Maybe it'll be uh, the T-1000's favorite pastime is watching antlers. Nope, no one's going to be spared. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Oh, wait, do you say the, did you say the T-1000 or the T-800? <laughs> I said the T-1000. Oh, okay. So then he's just going to be like, have you seen this web series? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> hold, up a, hold up a photo of Have you seen this Lloyd? For... <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> then it turns into Wayne's World and I do the turn to the camera. Ah! Oh, oh, oh! Or maybe he's. Uh, have you seen this? Have you seen this, Jose Corzon? Oh, everybody he, is Jose Corzon. He just becomes a uh, Juan Spencer. Kane's he just character. holds up a yearbook. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, yeah. the The thing about Antlers is funny because the film we're talking about today and the directors we're talking about today, I hadn't gone back to them in years, um, and I hadn't seen all of their films. I'd only seen two of them as a team and one of them from the solo effort. But when I was watching our film today, 
I did find it interesting how Antlers parallels it in interesting ways. Mm. And this is, I, I wanted to, um, I, I wanted to say that, like, it's interesting that, like, I don't, I don't think, like, you were drawing, obviously, from a matter of life and death, per se, but it's interesting how themes that our movie today carries still carry on because you do have like somebody coming down and intervening. Yeah. Um, and that's something that isn't f- like exclusive to a matter of life and death, but it is something that it continues to carry on. And you're proving that this is a cinematic trope that still exists, like something coming from another place to intervene on behalf of life. Maybe, Not in the same manner though. Yeah. Maybe something that, that is a cinematic trope, but maybe also just a, uh, a symbolic sort of archetypal, mm-hmm sort of feeling just in the human spirit, you know, that we all kind of, you know, relate to in any certain way. Yeah. And the thing that I get from the piece ultimately when I, when I, cause I, I've watched the episodes now. I've watched it in full first before you released it. And then I've gone through each week like everybody else. And the thing I notice about it is that, that, one, because of the way it's broken up now as a web series, it ends up proving to be like I, I'm getting invested in each segment on its own merits. Yeah. And not having to look at it as an overall piece. But also, I'm investing more in how much the Antlers character does play that effect in there because we get to see them develop over the course of the of these weeks that we had. Because you cause you released the first two episodes in the same week. Yeah. And then you did the remainder. And so watching how Antlers navigates through each and every episode is interesting because it it then creates a situation of wondering when's he going to pop up next. <laughs> yeah. And at what what point dramatically is Antlers going to intervene because there are points in some of the character arcs where he pops up at the at not at, sometimes at the place you expect and then sometimes at the place you don't expect but it ends up making sense emotionally after the fact. <laughs> um absolutely. They, yeah, like um the dog bit <laughs> when, when, because, um, so for anybody who hasn't watched it yet, again, why I haven't do fucking watched it. Um, <laughs> my character is falling into battered puppy syndrome with his partner in crime. Um, <laughs> who our, our, our objective is to recover a blind dog named bandit and <laughs> a blind dog who got stolen by some low level drug dealers who have daddy issues. Yes, exactly. But you, um, you do play Lloyd, who is that sort of archetype. Everybody knows him of that guy in the friend group who just, you know, doesn't quite, uh, uh, you know, have the gumption or the confidence to speak up in, in a way that works. You know, so it's very comedically, yeah. uh, it's very, it's very funny what you do with sort of that awkwardness of trying to uh, hold your ground while just getting sort of trampled over by these other two guys <laughs> yeah and and part of it also stems into at that particular moment when antler shows up for us and he has me put on a dog collar <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and have dan barnett walking me around like a dog uh <laughs> it's the it's the correct moment in that character's arc for him to undergo that and obviously since it's a film we didn't shoot everything in a linear order so it, like the performance, like th- something great that you did as a director was kind of gearing me up for those individual moments. And that one in particular was one where I remember listening to you as clearly and concisely as possible because I had to be at work two hours after we shot that scene. Yeah, we were <laughs> rushing. <laughs> yeah. So I was just like, 
Gotcha. Gotcha. I have reached the end of my rope here. <laughs> yeah, and it, and, it sh- and that shows, you know, on your face oh, yeah. in that scene. You know, it's like you can't. That's almost that's almost like a non-acting performance. Like he's uh. just feeling the emotion of just like this is not. There's just too much going on. I don't want to emotionally reconcile everything that's going on right now. <laughs> yeah, and I was just like, one day I'm gonna make John talk on a microphone for me. <laughs> <laughs> then he'll know how it feels. That's the metaphoric dog collar of podcasting. Well, what I what also what I love about that, now that you bring it up, is like that does come at a at a at a point for the Lloyd character. But what I love mm-hmm. about the Lloyd character is that that doesn't stop him. That doesn't no, that doesn't no. change him at all. He you know he goes through this and he's still there for Adam no matter what. And it's like yeah, it's a beautiful it, thing. It, I think it, I think Lloyd's emotional awakening is through a self-awareness, but it's not a change. It's a, not a change in behavior so much as it's an awareness of his own behavior, but also how others treat him. So it's like, I think there's like, there, it's, it's his is, his is not external life change Yeah. Um, in the same way. I think he, it's a very different thing. <laughs> I think he always had this sort of ability within yeah. him he just wasn't he never was given the opportunity to find the confidence to sh- to to realize it within himself and show it so mm-hmm. maybe so it's interesting how this sort of antlers uh situation just knocks the other two guys down like a peg or two so that they've fallen and then now he gives this opportunity where it's like oh well you you guys don't know what to do well i I, I know what to do. Let's do it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and he, and he, You're just like, well, I got a comic plan. <laughs> and he comes through gloriously. Oh, yeah. In a wonderful Pro- slow motion through, march through the, towards through the, victory. Through the, fate, through the fate of cinema, I come up with something. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and your plan is to sneak in and strangle him with a scarf. <laughs> yep. Because I'm also a monster. <laughs> Lloyd's a secret animal. <laughs> he, he really is. He really is. Yeah. It actually ties it. <laughs> By the time this will already have come out, the shot where I'm <laughs> the shot where I'm doing that, I don't know. I don't think you intended this. If you did, that's pretty cool. But like, if you were to screenshot that and compare it to the murder in the, the strangling scene and dial him for murder when he's about to strangle Grace Kelly. <laughs> and, and I, I remember looking at it going like, it's not, it's not the same angle, but I'm like, ah, oh, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I got Another to play an, it. Cinema <laughs> trope. It's all connected. It's all connected. It's all, it's all connected. connected. John, John, I'm fucking everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, that kind of leads us actually within that comparison. See that clever segue I just did, except it's you. not clever. It's silly. You're, you're calling um, it out. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, that's, 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 I mean, that's why it's terrible now. <laughs> yes. um, we're here to talk about the archers. Uh, so we're going from antlers to archers, if you will. Um, a group of, uh, a, a duo of filmmakers that I think have, in terms of our exposure to them, it definitely comes from film school. It does not come beforehand, um, unless you prove me wrong, <laughs> because <laughs> that's definitely what my exposure is. But um, yeah. what was your first exper- experience with Powell and Pressburger, Mr. Sterlick? It was 
I believe it was Red Shoes. Yes. Okay. I had seen Red Shoes, yeah, probably in film school. Uh, because Martin Scorsese wouldn't shut up about it. Nope, nope. Never going to do it anymore. Not going to stop either. <laughs> My favorite film, you know, the, the yep. Red Shoes. It's Because uh... <laughs> the shoes, see, they're red. Yeah. And then she can't yeah, She absolutely. can't stop dancing. So her, her, her fascination with art now becomes a religious dogma. And then, so therefore, she can't take off the shoes because she has to torture herself forever to make her art perfect. You understand what I'm saying? You understand what I'm fucking saying? <laughs> it, it's, it's true. And, I, and at that time, I feel like I wasn't really in the right place to fully appreciate it you know Mm -hmm. i was still very much enamored with a sort of more juvenile um idea of uh of movies and Mm. so i think my renewed sort of my revisit to them where, where they were resurrected in my in my mind my cinematic mind that came through was around the same time uh, of David Lean when I had that opportunity to just wo- just watch uh, a bunch of movies, mm-hmm. and that's when I watched uh, A Matter of Life and Death, and I really, I really connected with it in a big way. And then pretty soon after that, I was given the opportunity to watch at, um, I believe it was the Egyptian Theater. Mm-hmm. In uh, LA, in in Los Angeles, it's uh, they played an original. Uh, um, why am I spacing on the name? The 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 flammable, the nitrate nitrate, print. nitrate print. yeah, yeah nitrate, nitrate print. print. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and and they 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 projected that at the Egyptian of Black Narcissus. Ooh. And it oh, was glorious. Oh, it was glorious. Oh, 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 you <laughs> son of a bitch! I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I ah, uh, there are times when I'm just like, yeah, you know what? I'm glad I don't live in LA. And then there are times when I hear things like that, and I'm like, you fucking assholes! Oh Every God. single one of you. <laughs> <laughs> All said in love, and actually, we're rec- as we're recording this, the Cinerama Dome has shut down. <laughs> Hopefully, temporarily. Yeah, it comes at a great irony that not too long before that you were standing right in front of it to do an Instagram Q and A for Antlers. We were the last filmmakers to have a live Q and A from uh, Hollywood Cinerama Dome. That's true, and it's on my Instagram feed, <laughs> so I have proof. Strelick, we were the, we were the last ones. It was like a day or two after that. Yeah, but like a day after, like oh my god. I remember in the Q&A talking about the history of it being like, yeah, Mr. Mad, Mad, Mad World was the premiere one there. And it wasn't actually for 70 millimeter, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And, I, and I'm just like, yeah, well, someday I'll get to see it two days later. Shut down. <laughs> There's no way they're going to let that. You know, so, somebody's going to rescue it. It's it, just the rest of the Arclight and Pacific theaters are going to. Which is sad because I never went to an Arclight either, but I know a lot of people who love the Arclight. Oh, it's so, it's yeah, it's yeah, it's a pity. It's it was like my favorite, um, like movie movie theater. The, you know, it cost yeah. a bit more than the the other chains. You know, but it was like it was like a treat. You know, it's like let's yeah. go to the the arc light. Let's, it's so, uh, sort of what this. It's sort of what the Alamo can be out here because the Alamo is a little bit more. Um, expensive because of the food and you don't want to not get the food there you know what i'm talking about like <laughs> well i'm I'm weird i don't like food well 
watching. You don't like food, period, do you? Well, no, I love food, (laughs) but I don't like food while watching a movie. Ah, see, I'm, I'm, I, I fluctuate. Yeah. So like, if I'm going to an AMC or a Regal, I don't get food. Yeah. Because uh, I can't do the popcorn there anymore. Like when I, you, <laughs> do, you we should do a podcast I, on 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 ooh, uh, movie theater etiquette and like different routines and stuff like that. We need to get Brad Haig on there because Brad Haig from Real Nerds has had some horror stories, and that every time he wants to go to a movie and enjoy himself without fear of distraction from anybody else. He always gets put in the position where he is next to the worst people imaginable. Oh, no. I I should try to make a compilation of every single time Brad has had a bad experience. At one point, he almost got into a fist fight with somebody. Oh my god! And Brad's not a mean guy, wow. so this was the the other person was the one instigating the fight. <laughs> uh, so it's very very. Um, interesting to say it's a, it's an adventure it's it's a, it's a realm of of un, untapped adventure and drama that people just don't really pay attention to is that the movie theater is a microcosm of uh the yeah. like the diplomacy of the united nations essentially yeah and given my experience with it in the past there's <laughs> definitely been huge extreme issues with that but yeah. we're not here to talk about <laughs> that <laughs> Oh, Seth Skirman, our buddy Seth Skirman, he's got a great routine for um for the new Beverly, going to double really? feature. Yeah, which I've been to. I've been to the new Bev a couple times. One of my best new Bev experiences actually came while I was still in film school because I went to L.A. for my grandfather's funeral. Mm. And at the same time, they were going to show Megaforce <laughs> at the new Bev, directed by Hal Needham, and Hal Needham was going to be there. And I was like, well, I want to, I want to see Hal Needham do a Q and A. And Hal Needham, for people who don't know, was the director of films like Hooper and Smokey and the Bandit and uh, the Cannonball Run. So I liked those films a lot when I was coming out of my high school years, going into college. And so I got to meet Hal Needham at the New Bev, and I technically talked to Clue Gulliger, but didn't realize who he was until a year after that. <laughs> oh, man. He was super nice. That's awesome. Super kind. People told me, yeah, he's a regular here. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then I, f- <laughs> then I rewatched A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and saw him as the dad. And I'm like, oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I re- no, goddammit. But anyway, we're not here to talk about the new Bev, although that is a that is another place that once it reopens, fucking go. Oh, you, you know. Guaranteed, guaranteed. Or Quentin Tarantino will talk you to death. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he'll he'll recruit me to do it too if he can't make it. I mean, that's what um, uh, where the, if this is coming out in you know, June, you know, yeah. They say in California everything's going to open up June 15th or whatever. That's Okay, so. We don't know, but that's one of the things um it's like yeah. uh, like movies, movie theaters. That's great. That's fantastic. I'll go see any movie in a movie theater. But when they start showing retrospectives again, yeah. Oh yeah. my god! <laughs> like I just, You're gonna I be would in heaven. I would die to just go and watch uh, Lawrence of Arabia on seventy millimeter. Well, oh. tell well tell tell me something. Would you die, but then realize you fell in love with somebody on Earth? <laughs> <laughs> and go, I changed my mind. Well, if I die, if I die along the way, and a fog okay. rolls in, and they happen to miss me, 
uh-huh that's uh, how you're able to see the movie <laughs> i may i may make it to yeah. <laughs> uh probably the arrow in santa monica yeah the arrow is another good one too. and uh and and when i go there i may find a uh you know uh fall in love with the ticket taker and then they can't take me back yeah yep they can't take you back <laughs> not even conductor 71 can do it oh and conductor 71 is so well, well. dolled up i mean yeah no I mean, he's flashy glamorous. enough to be like, yeah, I should listen to you and go up to heaven. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you're, dre- you're just braver than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, no. So you've had quite the exposure to Pal of Pressburger. Um, yeah, I, 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 I need more. I want to see more of their things. As do I. Yeah. Um, I really liked going back to Pal and Pressburger. However, today's film is a first time viewing for me. Um, in terms of, uh, we planned this after the summertime episode, um, or actually I think you can hear us on the episode planning it, but, um, I was saying I haven't seen a matter of life and death, but I have already been made aware of how influential it is. My exposure to Powell and Pressburger was in the strangest of circumstances. Um, uh, when I was at film school, uh, in 2011, uh, a group of friends of mine went to go see the Muppets uh, at one of my movie theaters, the, re- the reboot of the Muppets with uh, Jason Siegel and uh, Amy Adams. Mm-hmm. And this was like the third time I had seen it because I'm a Muppet fan. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that movie's brilliant. And anybody who wants to say different, I'll punch him. Uh, and I know a few people who are be like, you know, I'm, I'm, I might be tempted to punch you on that. But uh, during that screening, I started getting stomach pains, like huge stomach pains, like piercing like down in my gut and I was to the point of barely being able to walk out of the theater to step outside and a uh, group of friends of mine that were with they um, I told them I'd be all right they stayed through the rest of the movie I kind of like stood in the aisle and they took we they helped me get home I went to bed my roommate uh, at the time uh came in to check on me and I was in constant pain. He's like, we're taking you to the hospital. So he took me to the hospital. So I'm, I, I go to the hospital that night to check on this stomach pain. It turns out it's appendicitis. Mm. So he was like, okay, we got to remove your appendix here in a couple of hours because we need to get it done. Get put under, do the procedure, wake up. They say, you've got to stay in the hospital overnight for observation. And, uh, but I had my laptop. My my folks came by and they brought my laptop for me. Now around this time, I was listening to a lot of Scorsese interviews and watching a lot of Scorsese interviews where he talked about films. And amongst them was Black Narcissus. Black Narcissus, coincidentally, was on one of the streaming services that we had access to, which I believe it would have been Netflix at the time. Uh, so, um, which it's interesting, Netflix did have like a bunch of cool Criterion titles for like a hot moment when they were starting out, like with the streaming service. Like they had like a like a slew of really cool stuff. Now they don't, mm. um, but they also had Peeping Tom on there. And so, in the hospital on my laptop, I watched Peeping Tom and Black Narcissus back to back. Not super advisable when you're trying to recover from appendicitis, but the brutality of peeping tom and the insanity of black narcissus distracted me from any pain i was feeling at the time which when you have appendicitis it's hard to walk around for a couple days after the procedure because it's you're digging into your system there um and 
what was interesting is I was seeing Powell and Pressburger first, and then I was watching just Powell alone. Later on, I watched The Red Shoes, and then I kind of never went back to Powell and Pressburger apart from one extra viewing of Black Narcissus because it did blow me away. But in the lieu of our dis- in the wake of our discussion, I'm sorry, of Summertime and Technicolor and the grand scheme of Technicolor, one thing I do remember about my experience with Powell and Pressburger is wow, Technicolor. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great uh, a great example of the power of Technicolor. Mm. Uh, which is uh, a form of uh, a form of look on film that doesn't really exist anymore um, because Technicolor, as it existed then, it doesn't really exist anymore because we have different color um, processes. It's um, it's the 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 facilities, the equipment, equipment, everything, everything necessary to. Uh, to make them has been dismantled and is no longer uh, in service. So in order to even make another print of these films that we have Technicolor prints of uh, would just involve way too, way more of a uh, financial uh, investment than anyone finds uh, reasonably sane. Yeah. And we can't we're, we're, to to try to do both an introduction to Powell and Pressburger and Technicolor would be disingenuous. So we're going to kind of try to split the difference here and talk about both of them as best as we can. But Technicolor, we've already kind of talked about two strip Technicolor with King of Jazz with Aaron Pendergast. What we're talking about right now starts really at the beginning of the three strip Technicolor process, and. This is a process that wouldn't get a full adoption into the mainstream until after Walt Disney um, would use it for his short Flowers and Trees in 1932 with Process 4, which is the new three-strip at the time. Uh, and this was when Disney negotiated an exclusive contract with the use of, use of this process that extended into September of 1935. Um, flowers and trees. So he, yeah, he put up an exclusive contract with that. Um, and over time, Technicolor had made its way to becoming a, uh, an accepted art form. And it, with that came, I would say, interesting ramifications. Number one, up until the fifties, Technicolor was like a once in a, once in a while thing. This was this was used for prestige pieces. This was not used for everyday fare. So, like a Jack Benny movie, not going to be in Technicolor, you know. I mean, <laughs> Unfortunately, which, which, yeah. Oh, you know why, John? Because then you can't see his beautiful blue eyes. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but uh, then that's technically I stole that joke from Jack Benny, so I apologize, Mr. Benny. It's a, um, it's a homage. Yeah, yeah, it's it's homage. Yes, hi, I'm Zach Tarantino, Quentin <laughs> Tarantino's illegitimate son. Um, but with with that also came the consulting matters of Natalie Kalmus, uh, who was, to say the least, a thorn in every person's side ever. <laughs> and I would say, rightfully so. I mean, the, the part. <laughs> Well, a, a huge part of like what I respect so much about the Technicolor process is that they are they are unforgiving of 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 anything less than great. You know, they they spent 
years and years with two strip, refusing to do three strip until they got it right. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's like this this dedication to to the craft and to to perfection or like this pursuit of perfection is really admirable. And yeah, of course, you know, thorn the side, but. Yeah, no, and and when I say thorn in the side, there is a complicated history with that because, to sum it up briefly, the Technicolor standard was designed and overseen by Natalie Kalmus, who was the ex-wife of Herbert Kalmus, who was the inventor of the process, who basically kept his last name even though they were divorced and he thought she was crazy. <laughs> Very, very weird marriage. Not a lot of time to get into it. We, it, it, When we do the te- Robin Hood episode, we'll dig further into it because I've already talked to you about doing that at some point yeah. because Robin Hood's kind of like the shining Hollywood example of Technicolor and what it can do. Um, another one would be Gone with the Wind. And I bring it up because David Oselznick, for all that I uh, – Love him. him for no, no, no. All your adoration, you guys I, should hear I, Zach talking to me about I, I, David Oselznick off mic. I, he loves I, him. He just oh, loves yeah. him so much. Don't listen to anything he says off mic. He just it's tells all, me. <laughs> oh, it's all a front. No, David Oselznick, who I have issues with, but still respect his um, contributions to cinema, not the least of which Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the making of Gone with the Wind, one of the things that I find interesting about the production of that film is that this was a situation where Kalmus got up to her criticisms in regards to the production of that film because Gone with the Wind falls in line with a couple of other films where the cinematographer or the producer or the director is trying to fudge with the process. Here's what Selznick had to say. The Technicolor experts have been up to their old tricks of putting all sorts of obstacles in the way of real beauty. We should have learned by now to take with a pound of salt how much of what is said to us by the Technicolor experts. I've tried for three years now to hammer into this organization that the Technicolor experts are for the purpose of guiding us technically on the film stock and not for the purpose of dominating the creative side of our pictures as to sets, costumes, or anything else. If we are not going to go in for lovely combinations of set and costume and really take advantage of the full variety of colors available to us, we might just as well have made the picture in black and white. It's a sad thing indeed if a great artist had all violent colors taken off his palette for fear that he would use them so clashingly as to make a beautiful painting impossible. Um, And a follow-up with... Uh, bad and the beautiful director, Vincent Minnelli, who we talked about with Mr. Johnson. Um, and his, J- Minnelli recalled working with Kalmus on Meet Me in St. Louis. This is what he has to say. My juxtaposition of color had been highly praised on the stage, but I couldn't do anything right in Mrs. Kalmus's eyes. Um, so Kalmus was very meticulous and what Selznick wanted to do with the Gone with the Wind color scheme was to fully express the colors on screen like really lay into the color palettes and schemes looking at Gone with the Wind on a visual palette it is very expressive with its colors in ways that Kalmus would have objected to um, one of the bigger examples that I tend to go to is the story on the set of Moulin Rouge um, where there were clashes with the regard of how Moulin Rouge was uh, 
being used technicolor wise by Ozzy Morris cinematographer for John Huston at that on that film where they were pumping the smoke with set and this wasn't specifically a Kalma situation but this was an example of a studio thinking that they were using the technicolor scheme and then muddying up the visuals the story of Moulin Rouge is taking place in a setting that requires smoke because cigarette smoke was frequent in those joints <laughs> and so uh Houston and Ozzy Morris are getting chewed out for this. John turned to Ozzy Morris and goes, well, why do you think we're doing Ozzy? And he goes, well, I think we're doing fine, John. He goes, that's good. Gentlemen, go fuck yourselves. And he just leaves the fucking meeting. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to fuck with the image. He ran into this same issue on the Technicolor scheme with Moby Dick where he's doing the same things. He's using the palette of Technicolor to create a... an impression of how color represented on film depicts the mood of those characters. Cardiff, on the other hand, was a stock player in Technicolor. He started off as a Technicolor cameraman before fully moving up to the helm of cinematography, starting with Delhi, working into The Great Mr. Handel, and then first time with Palin Pressburger is this film, A Matter in Life and Death. Now, we should talk about the archers themselves at this point because they are consistent of one Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Now, um, Michael Powell is a filmmaker that has been able to also establish his own reputation outside of the archers circle. Um, but this this combination that they possessed with each other um, is really magical. Like it, it's it's kind of like an interesting combination of fantasy clashing with themes of reality that is mind blowing to say the least. Um, mm-hmm. And let's let's talk a little bit about Powell first before we move into Pressburger. Powell grows up interested in photography at a young age. He's an Englishman. He's an Englishman, yes. Shouldn't say that. He's an Englishman born in Beckesbourne, Kent, England in 1905. Second son, uh, second son and the youngest child, Thomas William Powell, a hop farmer, and Mabel. Uh, and his mother, as he proclaimed in a documentary for the South Bank show, took lovely photographs and his first camera was a box brownie <laughs> beautiful <laughs> which which it, it, it's an actual thing but every time i hear box brownie i'm just like you can't take photographs with a brownie that's too delicious you'd eat it and then i'm like oh no no they're talking about the camera have you <laughs> seen have you seen the photographs yes I, yeah. I, I think i think they're very delicious looking so i uh, think it yeah, works I could, yeah that's a thing <laughs> i want to preserve film and photographs but I am hungry. Hmm, <laughs> <laughs> celluloid. <laughs> it's similar to in the Futurama episode where they're uh, where they're eating jerkified uh, mummies from sarcophaguses. <laughs> which, which that's is? that's Zephalon the Great. He's teriyaki style. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and that's I mean that's so important. I think with uh, with a lot of filmmakers that are visionary in that way you know that they a lot of them had that experience with photography beforehand yeah Um, and and or the cinema and or the film going experience in Mm -hmm. some form or fashion or storytelling 
Um, and Hitch, Hitchcock had an interest in this in the respect of working on those title designs um, and working his way up through the system and learning the craft underneath that. He wrote for magazines prior to that. Powell, from the documentary that you get on the South Bank, it, like, and what's kind of valuable about that doc is because it's Powell narrating it and starring in it and basically acting throughout it and giving his whole story in an hour <laughs> uh, is that he, uh, he, he exudes a lot of passion for the imagination and mm. the power of film. Um, if anything, he's far removed from the stiff upper lip British reputation that you might associate with a filmmaker from that country. Um, now, as we've learned already through Shamley, being from Britain doesn't necessarily make you a proper British filmmaker. Like, if anything, <laughs> the British filmmakers we've talked about have been more than willing to, you know, break at tradition at every given front. Um, and what's funny is Powell and Hitchcock end up doing a similar movie each in the same year that end up breaking the same ground in 1960. But that's a story for another day. They do have that sort of in common, this sort of, they both come from a more mm -hmm. realism focus of, of, of British cinema. And they both kind of end up uh, diverging from that in, in more surreal sort of dreamlike ways that, that had not been done before. Which is interesting because when we talked about Lean, when we were talking about his earlier films, it, I still need to go through a majority of the titles that we had discussed, but it seemed like he was pushing towards like a, a, a more stronger blend where he, he'll dip out of it, but it's mainly focused in, like a, in some form of reality. Powell and Hitch divert because they're defining a style for Britain. Mm. It doesn't seem like Lean was interested in cementing a style per se, because he was, you know, we said at first he started with the, his team-up films with Noel Coward before then going on his own. Yeah, play he's, he's, well. He yeah, he did that, and then he moved to uh, the 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 Dickens adaptations, yeah. which were uh, not necessarily surreal. They were more. Um, fantastical yeah like like a german expressionist sort of yeah. like this which have like share an element of it but then after that you know it's hard to call him a british filmmaker anymore because he just would not make a movie in england again no no i, I told you i just want to get away from all uh, my mini wives so, yeah. and you know i i just i just john sometimes you just want to go to the fucking desert and figure out how you can make cool fucking edits that film school nerds will talk about years later. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, uh, Summertime yeah. with Venice and uh, Russia or wherever they, I don't know where they filmed it for Dr. Zhivago. Uh, probably wouldn't have been Russia. Probably would have been, I've still never seen Dr. Zhivago to this day. That's um, fine. But, but getting to Powell and Powell is more interested, not too dissimilarly from Hitch, in developing a style. Now, Powell, though, before he even thinks about defining anything or at the very least trying to make a career, he enters the film industry in 1925 working for director Rex Ingram uh, on the movie The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Rex Ingram is a character that I would love to talk more about at some point. He's an Irish film director and producer who director Eric von Stroheim called the world's greatest director. 
given the fact that that statement's coming from Eric von Stroheim makes me laugh, but also respect his words. Because <laughs> I'm just like, oh, really? How long are his movies? Because <laughs> um, they must have been 12 hours long. Um, but yes, no, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse is that first film that he teams up with them on. And he works primarily as a studio hand, a gopher. We've all been a gopher in our lives. You mm. get coffee. You get a cord if somebody needs a if you, somebody needs a stinger for lights. You get stingers. Um, but then he starts working in still photography and doing stills for uh, the the silent films, making titles for the silent films, not too dissimilarly from me, um, <laughs> and occasionally doing other acting roles. He's in a he, movie. It says he did stills photography for Champagne by he did alfred hitch yes me i saw <laughs> yeah. that little boy i saw that little michael and i was like oh isn't that cool you're a little younger than me but you come on set you can be hey help me take still photographs for this movie that i really don't give a shit about and i just really needed to make out for my contract because champagne is fucking terrible <laughs> <laughs> champagne is not one of my best let's just put it that way i uh, we talked about it briefly on shamley we'll never bring it up again because there's not much to talk about <laughs> Um, it could have been better, but no, um, no, this is not the last time he would work with Hitch either. And it's not the last time Hitch would prove important in his life. The next thing he does with Hitchcock is work on the script for Alfred Hitchcock's first talkie movie, Blackmail, which is a film that we haven't discussed in any Shamley, but will do because we had Will Elder on and he wanted to talk about it. But Blackmail, he's among the three screenwriters listed. And in his autobiography, Powell claims that in blackmail that he suggested the ending in the British Museum, which was the beginning of Hitchcock using these climaxes to his movies. Now, there had been climaxes in Hitchcock's movies before, but we're talking like huge set pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the fact that I don't hear any quote from Hitchcock going, that's bullshit. (laughs) Tells me that either Hitchcock never knew <laughs> that Powell would claim this. Um, obviously, he wouldn't have read Powell's autobiography because the autobiography comes out years later. But just imagine Powell bragging this and Hitchcock suddenly overhearing it and going, what? <laughs> <laughs> Powell did two of my movies and that's fucking it. <laughs> After that, he went to work for Jerry Jackson. Well, I mean, make quarter quickies for the British. <laughs> it does. It does make sense. Um because in you know in in the the Powell and Pressburger movies that I've seen they do have such uh, elaborate sort of climactic set pieces, including yes, the one we're it, talking about today. So yeah, it's true. He did really cool things in heaven, but did he have Cary Grant climbing around Mount Rushmore? I don't think so, John. <laughs> Hitch one, power zero. <laughs> uh, that's right. It's a competition up in heaven, and I am winning. <laughs> um, and he starts working, as I said, for Jerry, ja- as Hitch said, for Jerry Jackson, making quota quickies. Now, this is something I was interested in, and I want to talk. I want to bring this up really quickly before we move into Pressburger because we're about to get to him. Quota quickies were, and this is according to uh, an article through Wikipedia. And I wanted to source that because I can't find any back reference to it that I can access, but here's the description. The quota quickies were mostly low cost, low quality, quickly accomplished films commissioned by American distributors active in the UK or by British cinema owners purely to satisfy quota requirements. 
In recent years, an alternative view has arisen among film historians such as Lawrence Knapper, who have argued that the quota quickie has been too casually dismissed in its particular cultural and cultural and historical value because it was recorded performances unique to British popular culture, such as music hall and variety acts that would not have been filmed under normal economic circumstances. So that would be like if Marvel had to do 12 movies a year. <laughs> yeah, like, that's kind of like uh, Sony's uh, um, Spider-Man thing where they have to make a Spider-Man yes, movie at a certain point or they lose the rights. Yeah, exactly. Or like Superman. Superman was another case of just oh, like, well, really? we've got to make a Superman movie or else we lose the rights. But instead, so, it's a na- it's it's wait, it's uh, a national act, national this film act- fund or something. They'd lose their. It, it just seems like they would lose any ac- activity that they would maintain wanna, as American distributors active in the UK. I want to make quota quickies. We need we need to establish something in the country here that requires us to make a quota. Or you know. You know what we do? Quota quickies for the moon. <laughs> nobody nobody has a cinema on the moon yet. That's true. But we will. <laughs> That's true. Or when when somebody does, we'll have the movie quota ready for the moon. <laughs> I think I think yeah, I think that doesn't work so much anymore because it's like whether there's a surplus of movies being made these days. Everyone in their you yeah. know, and their and their aunt is making a movie, so it's like uh we got quota too much. Yeah. By the way, see Leather Brown on Vimeo exclusively. <laughs> yeah. Also, I got a movie coming out called "That's Just Rocks." This is about. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yes. The the Strelick Eastman double bill is a quota quickie that you can. <laughs> um, and now this act was modified by the Cinematograph Cinemagraph Films Act of 1938, which removed films shot by nations in the British Empire from the quota and further acts. And it was eventually repealed by the Films Act of 1960. This is another discussion that we're going to have to have down the line, but we don't have time because Michael Powell is moving away from Jerry Jackson and he is beginning his directorial career within that circle with the movie Two Crowded Hours, which gains him some attraction from critics. Uh, And then he does his first personal movie. He does his first personal movie called The Edge of the World, which is a film that is inspired by the excavation for the Scottish archipelago of St. Kilda. All words that mean nothing to me, and so that means it's something I've got to see. But this is the beginning of him becoming a more personal filmmaker. Two years after Edge, he's put under contract to Alexander Korda, a.k.a. Homie Reckless, because (laughs) Korda has an interesting story of... Korda of Jewish descent um, fled... Europe as the Nazis were invading at this point he is the head of London films he puts Powell under contract Powell is asked to come in and save a movie called the spy in black which is a film featuring Conrad Casablanca Vite. Um and this is where Alexander Corda said now let me bring in this young man who I think can help us with the story and in walks in Emmerich Pressburger now as Emmerich Pressburger walks in, that's when the film stops, not unlike a scene in A Matter of Life and Death. But instead, you hear our narrator go, I bet you're wondering how I got here. <laughs> and uh, we get a little bit of Emmerich Pressburger, born in Miskalk, part of the Kingdom of Hungary, uh, is raised well and excels in mathematics. He carries those studies into the University of Prague, and his education is only cut short from the, with, the, with the death of his father. 
He then starts working as a journalist in the 20s in the Weimar Republic era Germany and Hungary before moving into screenwriting for the Universum Film Attiken Gesellschaft, or the UFA, in Berlin, Germany. Through the UFA, he makes films both in Germany and France as a script selector. So basically, he works in development. He starts, he works through and edits the pieces and approves the, uh, improves the pieces that go out. He is of Jewish descent, and as the Nazis are rising to power, it forces him to leave Germany first to France, and then eventually to London, where he continues screenwriting. This is what he had to say on the matter of fleeing. The worst things that happened to me were the political consequences of events beyond my control. The best things were exactly the same. He arrives in Britain in 1935. He originally is named Emir Joseph. He changes his name to Emmerich. He arrives on a stateless passport, so he is a refugee, and he gets in the hands of Korda, who is a fellow exile, as we just mentioned. And this is when we get the huge meeting here. Now, Emmerich works primarily as a writer. And given his experience, as he emigrates, he it seems that he comes to accept Britain as his home. And something that's interesting when you watch retrospectives on these two is that the person that you think would be acting in the typical British manner, Michael, actually acts outside of that norm, whereas Pressburger is a little bit more reserved, a little bit of a stiff upper lip. It's interesting how when these two people who theoretically couldn't be any different from each other like that like it's like night, it's sort of night and day by comparison powell's a little bit more of a wild guy pressburger's a little bit reserved mm-hmm. when the two come together they are to the point of finishing each other's sentences or sandwiches or whatever you want to do here <laughs> because um it's that un un understandable chemistry that can happen yes Yes, the doesn't, ones you're not expecting. These are like, well, it's not too dissimilar from honestly, like McCartney I, and Lennon. McCartney and Lennon is one. I was going to go with Laurel and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy. Because Laurel and Hardy are teamed up through Hal Roach. They worked individually as comics. They've been brought together by Hal Roach mm-hmm. through magic, mm-hmm. careful work, hard work. They become an indelible comedy team that grow to love and admire each other beyond the confines of just merely being paired up. Yeah, and Emmerich pointed to the fact that they started being able to like he would write something and Powell would be able to finish it like he would already know he could already in, be in tune to the ending before it happened um, of any moment now this is what Powell had to say upon meeting Pressburger Emmerich as Emmerich comes to the room Emmerich produced a very small piece of paper rolled up and addressed the meeting. I listened spellbound. Since talkies took over the movies, I had worked with some great writers, but I had never met anything like this. In the silent days, the top American screenwriters were technicians rather than dramatists. The European cinema remained highly literate in each country, conscious of its separate culture and literature, strove to outdo the other. All this was changed by the talkies. America, with its enormous wealth and enthusiasm and its technical resources, waved the big stick. European film no longer existed. 
Only the great German film businesses were as prepared to fight the American monopoly, and Dr. Goebbels soon put up a stop to that in 1933. But the day that Emrecht walked out of his flat, leaving the key in the door to save the stormtroopers the trouble of breaking it down, was the worst day's work that the clever doctor ever did for his country's reputation, as he was soon to find out. I, as I said, listened spellbound to this small Hungarian wizard, as Emrek unfolded his notes until they were at least six inches long. He had stood Storer's Clauston's plot on its head and completely restructured the film. Boom. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> I'm glad I got through all of that. Now, <laughs> and this is now the Michael Powell voice. Doesn't matter if it sounds like him. This is the ballyhoo. Now, um, now there is a there is a there is a misnomer that I was reading into as I was starting to my starting research on these guys. Apparently, there is an indication that Emmerich was just the story guy. That's how it worked. <laughs> nope. um, as you will know by this point. Having watched the film, if you watch, if you listen to these shows correctly, where you hear my intro first, you watch the movie, and then you listen to the episode, because <laughs> that's how it works format-wise. Um, uh, it's written, produced, and directed by Powell and Pressburger. It's a multifunctional tool here, writer, producer, and director. Powell has been attributed with the direction. Pressburger is attributed with the story. Pressburger was also primary in the, fil- in the role of film producer handing a lot of the organizational elements of the production, overseeing things, mm-hmm. uh, in addition to being the story guy. So he, it's not just as simple as that. Well, he'd, they really he'd d- come up with the story, and and mm-hmm. Powell would help him write the script. So it wasn't even he was, you know, Powell is not saying that, it's doing a disservice saying that Powell isn't also involved in the writing process in, in that he, way. He, exactly. You could almost say, John, that it's teamwork. <laughs> it is. It is it's, teamwork. It, it is teamwork. It is strong and right it helps us make a movie like contraband (laughs) exactly and Powell would you know he would take over a bit with uh with the directing you know Mm -hmm. but but Pressburger would be there on set all the time and and Powell you know they were very collaborative Mm -hmm. as you know their tenants their their manifesto makes clear but He'd, he'd, he'd be there to make sure that anything that, like, someone, some brilliant idea that somebody had, that Powell was like, that's it. Pressburg would be there to be like, well, yeah, we could do that. It would fit in in this way. We just got to make sure we cover our bases there. But then right. when they're done with the movies, Powell would go off to the Scottish Highlands and just relax while Pressburger oversaw editing. Yep. And so it's uh, there was there seemed to have been at that point an understanding, because it's truly com- collaborative. Yeah, and kind of spoilers for the upfront. Their eventual dissolution doesn't seem to be caused with any strife per se. That are, that is indicated here um, through the arena documentary that is fully available on YouTube, and I will put a link to it in the liner notes. Seems like everything was pretty amicable. They still remained friends up to the to the end of their days, um, but. After The Spy in Black, Powell does two films for Corda and then goes back with Pressburger in 1940 for a movie called Contraband, which would begin a run of World War II films that they were making. The most influential of these being 49th Parallel, which wins Pressburger the Academy Award for Best Story. Uh, And incidentally, 
contraband and 49th parallel sort of resemble what the fuck I did. <laughs> um, and, uh, foreign correspondent, uh, 39 steps, uh, saboteur, <laughs> you know, it, it look, it, I don't really well, care if they're the, stealing from me because it's all about warning people about the fucking Nazis are coming. <laughs> but they, anyway, they start the archers. They start the archers. Yes. They, they pair up with the writer, producer, director card, on their next film, which is One of Our Aircraft is Missing. 1942 makes reference to the Archers in the credits. And then 1943, they incorporated the company into Archers Films Productions and adopted that logo. Um, that if you've seen an Archer film, you've seen it. It's, uh, it's an, uh, an archery target. A bunch of arrows haven't quite hit the middle, but then all of a sudden one hits the middle. And it's, it's like, like, yeah, that's an archer's production. Eventually, like, uh, we hit the bullseye. <laughs> yeah, it's like Disney's Robin Hood, you know? Yes, exactly. Like, look, we're just going to, you know, shoot a couple of blank missing arrows. And you imagine it's a, we'll... just imagine it's a fox dressed up as a bird on stilts shooting yes. arrows. At... <laughs> and standing right behind it is a bear that clearly was in the Jungle Book, but is now in Robin Hood. And they're both voiced by Phil Harris. <laughs> Absolutely. Lil John and Blue, both uh, heroes of mine as a child. Yes. So that means Phil Harris was a hero of yours, which is why you would love Jack Benny, because uh, Phil Harris is on it each and every week, sir. There we go. Um, yeah. Um, but no, the archers are formed. Um, the joint credit indicates their joint responsibility that we've already discussed. Now, one of their among their first productions was a movie called The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which will be discussed in the future, but... During the making of this film, in a letter to Wendy Hiller, who was ask, asking, who they were asking to appear in the movie Colonel Blimp, Pressburger gave out the Archer's Manifesto. It has five points, and here we go with these five points. Number one, we owe allegiance to nobody except the financial interests which provide our money, and to them, the sole responsibility of them showing them profit, not a loss. Number two, Every single foot in our films is our own responsibility and nobody else's. We refuse to be guided or coerced by any influence but our own judgment. Number three. When we start work on a new idea, we must be a year ahead, not only in our competitors, but also of the times. A real film from idea to universal release takes a year or more. Number four. No artist believes in escapism. And we secretly believe that no audience does. We have proved, at any rate, that they will pay to see the truth, and for other reasons than their, than her nakedness. <laughs> and number five. <laughs> at any time, and particularly at the present, the self-respect of all collaborators from star to prop men is sustained or diminished by the theme and purpose of the film we are working on. <laughs> So off, right off the bat, these are declarations that are um, easier to keep than the Declaration of Principles written by Charles Foster Kane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a forerunner the, of uh, Dogma the, 95 yeah, as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, these are reasonable. <laughs> yeah, these are, well, I mean, you say they're reasonable, but you look at like the film industry at that time, especially, uh, you know, in Hollywood, where it's this sort of studio driven like a like factory you know the mm -hmm. idea of like we owe no allegiance we owe allegiance to nobody except financial interests like they're saying you 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 give us money and we'll guarantee you a profit and other yeah. than that stay away that's now, when I that's say, insane when I, for the time 
I know. And when I'm saying reasonable, I'm looking at that through my modern eyes. Yes. In the studio era, let's take it outside of Hollywood for a second. And Hollywood, absolutely not at this point. Yeah, not going to happen. There are exceptions because there are independent production companies popping up that would then get distribution through the studios. Yes. And then there's also... It was the exception, not not yeah. the rule. Like uh, there's also, uh, you know, Nicholas Ray and Sam Fuller, who, but yes. but they were a little bit later, but they were able to kind of sneak in there. And Corda is one of those people who does it early on, because mm. um, he does a lot of stuff through United Artists, and gets releases to other distribution companies within his tenure and time. Um, to the point of even collaborating with those Selznick in order to make sure that something like The Third Man gets out there. Um, now. Here in Britain in the 40s, where everything is a waking nightmare because of the constant bombing raids, which would lead to the uh, dismal state of the country at this time, this seems more or less like Britain is able to move in this direction easier than Hollywood. Doesn't mean, as you said, it's still tricky. Yeah, it gives um, it, it gives it, I, it. There's a there's a moment in time where this is possible, and they they kind of lucked into that moment. Yes. Now, however, it should be noted that with that luck also came some headaches that will be dissected further uh, as we go uh, into absolutely. into the archers. But needless to say, the life and death of Colonel Blimp was uh, a bit of a contentious piece uh, for its time. Um, <laughs> and we could be here all day talking about it. They move on to a propaganda shirt called The Volunteer. They then do a Canterbury tale, which is not a success. They then go to I Know Where I'm Going in 1945, and then we come to A Matter of Life and Death. Now, up at the top of the show, I had mentioned that the Ministry of War Information, uh, wartime, wartime Ministry of Information had begun to establish the ideas of a film that would be able to bridge those gaps now this is indicated through the wonderful commentary that's provided on this commentary track for criterion um now beautiful blu-ray beautiful blu-ray and what a beautiful blu-ray this production was initially designed as to form that bridge and they start shooting on august 14th 1945 on vj day their timing to make this film, John, as a bridge gap after the war is over is literally perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's It just like literally falls into the right direction within that. Um, now, <laughs> there are there are there seems to be some multiple elements of this film that took a while to get into production, not just because of the um, ambition involved, but also the technicolor involved. Because there was a nine-month wait for film stock and Technicolor cameras because they were being used by the U.S. Army to make training films. Um, And there were uh, elements of the production that were complicated by the fact that this film is not just in Technicolor, it's in glorious monochrome. And to be able to film in Technicolor the way Cardiff was used to, he knows how to do that. That's nothing off Cardiff's notes. He's a fucking painter. You know what I'm saying? He started like, in Technicolor. He started in Technicolor. He, he was, knows what the fuck he's doing. As 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 uh, not quite as uh, as Bane would say, but similar. He was born in Technicolor. Oh, you merely adopted the color. <laughs> oh, 
was born. I was born in the paint, <laughs> consumed by it. But that gave him, that led him to a, a little bit of an issue when uh, someone says, "Hey, we'd like some black and white as well." Wait, 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 wait. You mean I've got to remove all but two of the colors? Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> black and white. I say. Does do it... they make movies in that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's that's so interesting that he was... I like the idea of Jack Cardiff not knowing what black and white... He's, he's so <laughs> perplexed by it. I mean, it's so interesting because that's, that's, uh, that's what happened was that he was like more afraid to shoot something, more nervous, more reticent to shoot something in black and white, this age-old, you know format than than technicolor which is enormously like uh hard to deal with yeah and god bless him he pulls off both beautifully because it's not he does well what, what they do, do is technicolor black and white which is really interesting yes you know? monochrome dye process yeah it's like it's like they they shoot in technic technicolor camera they just don't add the dye yeah, so during the printing process, when you get the dyes in, the three dyes that create your full strip Technicolor. The imbibation. They, they, they give no color during the printing process, and it gives a pearly hue to the black and white shots. Yeah. And it's known as color and dye monochrome. So like in the commentary, he doesn't say black and white. He says monochrome. But on the label for the Blu-ray, it says black and white in color. And I'm like, well, that's now wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's why like, I, well, Criterion, <laughs> so respectful of your artists, huh? <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Uh, I guess I'm going to have to go over to C Criterion headquarters and have a word or two. Well, the cool thing about um, uh, uh, Technicolor is its imbibation process, the process, the, the dyeing process, how it's like a lithograph that's, that's sort of pressing. Uh, it's like pressing a, a, a print, you know, onto something rather than the negative process, which is which is is more uh, photochemical. You know, it's like a mixture of fine art and the photochemical process, which is... Which which lends into the discussion of how Technicolor stands out from other color processes. Because as the processes change and become a little bit more streamlined, you lose the unique imprint, I'd argue. Yeah. If you move from Technicolor to Color Deluxe or Eastman Color, which, by the way... If it's named Eastman Color, it's fucking terrible. <laughs> I should know. <laughs> hey, hey, you, you, you've made a lot of money from your family fortune off of that. Have I? Have I? <laughs> where is it, John? <laughs> uh, well, where where Eastman Color would would uh, fade to magenta. Often those prints would fade. The 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 yeah. Technicolor prints do not fade, and they they no, are they don't. They are much more resilient. The most resilient. Uh, like prints that that we've made so far yes so. which is why if they are messed up it does create an issue trying to restore them because mm -hmm. as you have discussed that processes no longer exist everything's pretty much dismantled and done technicolor doesn't do things the way it used to now no. um but you know it's evolving like any other process but it is something that like the closest that we've ever gotten to technicolor looking similar ish would be the aviator because mm. that was the intention of the filmmaking process behind it by Mr. Scorsese. Didn't, um, uh, didn't, uh, Mr. Tarantino, uh, talk about the, the, 
the film choice that they used for um, uh, Pulp Fiction being the closest you could get to a, a Technicolor. I have never heard that before. You were blowing my mind. Yeah, no, I know. That would make some, that would, what that make? That makes sense. It does look very vibrant. Yeah, you used a very right. slow speed uh, film. Yes, so there's it's a slow like speed stock, yeah. Hardly any grain in it whatsoever. That's probably why that Blu-ray still looks good, even yeah. though the... <laughs> the amount of light that you have to... <clears throat> Uh, put on the set, you know, uh, yeah. like uh, mul- like exponentially multiplies uh, the slower the your slower speed the is. Stock, yeah, but um, on Technicolor, you're pumping in the hottest lights and the most lights. Oh, because yeah. you have to, it has to push in there. <laughs> it's so slow. Yep, and given the fact that the movie we're going to talk about has some amazing outdoor sequences, I would, I've, I didn't. The one thing I regret doing is not looking at any possible behind the scenes photography of the lighting schemes or sets of this piece. Cause I'd want to see how much, how much work put in because like the most elaborate grid of lighting that I've ever seen where I could understand if you were baking under them was for rear window where they built that entire apartment complex in there. Yeah. But it was also kicked up with lights above all around that set was hot which also helped for the movie they were making because it takes place during the heat. Well, that was, I mean, that was the norm uh, for uh, mm. Ballyhoo time, at least, you know, is that like a lot of... <laughs> Ballyhoo time. <laughs> yeah, that's how I refer to it in my Thank own you. lexicon, Ballyhoo time within the, the film industry. I mean, that's a lot of why um, uh, the the French New Wave was able to do what they did and, and the American... Uh, uh, new hollywood of this you know the 70s going in from the 60s into the 70s is that not only did you get handheld cameras you also got uh faster film stocks so so you're able to move the camera a lot easier and you're able to shoot things without as much light so it made a lot of things possible yeah but prior to that it was you know you you wanted to make a movie you better have a lot of light yeah you better be pumping in like those types We've I've talked about it with Pendergast before, but those Titanic lights that we had in the fucking uh, and at the film school, you need like all of those. Oh yeah, <laughs> pumping in. Um, and in addition to the Technicolor, we also have the we have some interesting set design in this film that I think gives us the really the impression of what a Powell and Pressburger film can do at its finest, because it's not just how beautiful earth looks. It's how remarkable and streamlined heaven looks or heaven. Mm -hmm. Um, There was apparently an issue with them referring to it directly as heaven, which understandable because you don't want to, you know, I don't know, (laughs) like narrow your audience. Well, I think there's Um, something, something, yeah, there's something nice about that. You know, it's like it's like a movie heaven. You yes. know, it's like a movie afterlife sort of thing, like all dogs go to heaven kind of thing. Yeah, which this in particular is interesting coming out of World War II oh, because the as we're talking about this, what's interesting is is that this will relate eventually down the line if we ever talk about it's a wonderful life because these two come out within the same time frame and there's similar imagery contained mm. within both. Um, 
Now, you as the audience will have to decide where it actually found. No, we'll tell you as we go through. But um, well, it's uh, in, uh, what, what I like about it is I was uh, I was raised um, very loosely, you know, raised uh, kind of Christmas Easter Catholic, and uh, mm-hmm. and I remember distinctly being, you know, um, uh, a young teenager and having a conversation with somebody at my at the the church I went to um uh where i i had mentioned uh angels you know mm-hmm. uh like how you know when you die you get you get wings right yeah and uh and that was that was met with with a fierce <laughs> argument that that in the catholic religion i don't know if this is just uh, like a, a direct reading of the Bible. I don't know if it's it's just biblical in nature, but they're like uh, angels are a different being than humans. God made angels and God made humans, and they are different. You do not become an angel. And uh, and and I remember that being the moment when I was like, I I'm I'm I'm. This is you guys are ridiculous. The cartoons told me we become an angel. Don't you guys yeah. be ridiculous. I've watched all these movies where we get wings and we get Halo after we die, and that's what I believe. <laughs> Next, you're going to tell me that George Burns isn't what God <laughs> looks like. Okay, yeah, you all are... F- I'm fucking done. But it's great this, because... This it's, is stupid. <laughs> because that's that's the movie afterlife, which is like part... It, I mean, obviously... It's part of our It's part of our lexicon. Part of our lexicon, we, and this is one of the earlier showcases of that. Yes. Now, what's interesting, though, is that it does differ because the year before this in America, we do have the more traditional looking version of a streamlined Art Deco heaven look in a movie like The Horn Blows at Midnight, where it works in a similar bureaucratic fashion, but it isn't as... This this set by Alfred Youngy looks very bureaucratic by comparison. Like it, it just like it. Something about it feels uh, much more efficient than the one in the Horn Blows at Midnight, which feels a little bit more like, you know, what if Earth offices were somehow placed in the clouds? Yeah. <laughs> and what if full orchestra? And what if Jack Benny was an angel? I mean, we're not here to talk about that movie yet. We'll wait, guys. It'll be a first special time. Um, but uh, the the work of Alfred Youngy here is it's not the only time he would ever work with um, Powell and Pressburger. It's also not the first time he worked with a famous British director because, yeah, he helped me as art director on The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1934. Um, <laughs> the one everybody seems to think is the better one, but, you know, let's be honest, Jimmy Stewart one is better. No, it's not, Hitch. Stop it. Um, <laughs> and um, and what's more, this also features the return of David Niven to the screen. And David Niven had already been an established star up to this point, but he went back to Britain to enlist in service, apart from two other films where he was acting in wartime-related films, he hadn't been on the screen in years, and he was worried that he didn't have what it takes after uh, an experience like that to go back into this. Of course, he's David fucking Niven, so he does beautifully with it. Uh, And David Niven is, as David Niven is returning, Kim Hunter is brought into the picture, Thanks to my fucking suggestion, because I saw that David was putting her in a movie, and I said, yo, Mike, Amrick, check this shit out. 
Kim will do a very good June for you. And um, if you don't believe it, I will stay. You know what I'll do? If I'm if I'm right, then you guys encourage me to start my own studio that will then fail after two pictures, and then I'll just start working for the majors again, and I'll leave SalesNet completely, or you know, or or you know, just take my fucking word for it. You know, don't you remember I made blackmail? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so Alfred Hitchcock, um, having seen. Uh, Kim Hunter work uh, under David Oselznick. They saw her. They fell in love with her. And Kim Hunter, an American actress, she is... They said in the in the commentary that she had played a lead in a Val Luton movie. Were yes, you... The Seventh Victim. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, the uh, Kim you're... Hunter... Kim Hunter for me will always be Dr. Zira from Planet of the Apes. <laughs> there we go. I'm going to kiss you now. All right, but you're just so damned ugly. <laughs> <laughs> we all find our Kim Hunters. Yes. Uh, and then, of course, we saw her go beneath those Planet of the Apes. And then she and Cornelius escaped from the Planet of the Apes. And then they get shot. But their baby Caesar is raised by Ricardo Montalban in the circus. Oh, wait, wait, wait. God. Planet of the Apes isn't. In, in the Ballyhoo era. 1968. I didn't say you couldn't do 1968. I just said we try to talk about pre-1968. Okay. Guys, there's going to be a Planet of the Apes episode because <laughs> it's my podcast. I pay for it. I'll do what I want. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's, yes, no, it's, Kim part, H- it's called the Planet of the Apes exception. Don't go down there, Strelick. You won't <laughs> like what you find. <laughs> uh, no, um, yes. Yeah, so David Niven is returning kim hunter is really making her strides she's making she's making her she's she's coming in as sort of a lesser known where david yes. david nimmin is sort of this is like his uh, a big draw of this is that it's his return to film you know yes it's and, the first time you're gonna see him in a while and and yeah. she's kind of relatively unknown which uh which is kind of which kind of works for the role i think in a big way I think it does too because she we don't have any preconceived notions of her. Niven we already have some form of we like established reputation with him. Um now I'll be frank, I'm not like super versed in David Niven uh apart from scattered things um such as Mutiny on the Bounty nineteen thirty five. Um yeah. but it's his work after the war that I'm much more familiar with because uh, Pink Panther, <laughs> for one, um, and I, I like the vulnerability he brings because he's not—he's dashing, he's charismatic, he's charming, but he's also very vulnerable on screen here in a matter of life and death. Because this is a role that requires a lot of heart on your sleeve, and I think he can pull that off beautifully. <laughs> while still being the guy who's ready to die for queen and country in the plane while talking to Kim Hunter over the, over the radio. Um, I think we, we should talk. Do we want to jump into the plot right now to kind of talk about why everything's clicking at this point? Because we've we've built this up enough. Yeah. I'd love to do that. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's get it right off the bat. A matter of life and death directed by Powell and Pressburger. um, Directed, written and produced. Yes, starring David Niven, Ro- Roger Livesey, Raymond Massey, Kim Hunter, 
Marius Goring, and Richard Attenborough. You know, when you get somebody like him in your movie, you spare no expense. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, for a whopping two lines. Yes, for a whopping two lines. He was so handsome. But they were glorious. Don't you understand? (laughs) (laughs) They were. Oh God! Yeah, so to, uh, now and uh, now, Raymond Massey is interesting because is at this he point, is he not like just nineteen forties uh, um, Steve Buscemi? Have you seen Arsenic and Old Lace? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's I'm just saying his. Same. I'm saying his look. I don't think his countenance, his okay, how he holds yeah. himself, is just something in his eyes. He's got that those like Steve Buscemi. Oh, eyes. okay, yeah, yeah. The the expressiveness in the eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just seeing see him that. play that uh, that colonial. Yeah, he he looks like he came right out of colonial times too. Not it, just because of the dress, but yeah, he looks great. The, looks... It's it's like one step away from looking like Ichabod crane in the disney cartoon yeah yeah with, <laughs> with the, the knickers Adam's apple. <laughs> yeah. no he's so long and just like skinny and he's just got those like steve buscemi eyes that have this that like gravitas mm-hmm. and he's a guy who he he runs as I, I just mentioned a minute ago arsenic and old lace he he's good in that movie here's the problem he's not the person who should be playing that role it should have been boris karloff it's a it's a craw on the side of people who like Boris Karloff and know that he was on the stage version of this film and couldn't do it. And yeah, Raymond Massey's still good. It's just he has this unfortunate issue in his career where it's just like, ah, the one role that I really don't want you in, you are good in, but it's just I don't want you here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, a matter of life and death, we open up on the universe because <laughs> we're going big or going home here. <laughs> that's the, that's the scale we're working on with this movie. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it is insane. <laughs> it, the visuals here are, you know, you know how I said like Jack Cardiff, you know, paints a painting like paints a painting with the camera. Yeah. Well here it's actually a painting. And <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. And it's, and it's, I mean, 1946, that's, 20 you know 22 years before we get uh, someone on the moon yeah this this you know what's funny this comes at a point when there's two things in this film that that are being discussed heavily one is the idea of the cosmos and what's beyond and representing it on film now here this film is talking about it from a scientific point of expression of what's beyond our our reach the same visuals in a sense are used in it's a wonderful life, but in the grand scheme of heaven and talking about the importance of each and every life on earth, Mm -hmm. because it starts from that kind of vantage point. Um, This one is much more concerned with the overall grand scheme of the cosmos. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing it's also interested in is its theories on time and how time operates, because this was a, this was, stemming off of a period in time where Britain was fascinated by time and physics and how that all works. Now, I'm not a physicist, so I'm not even going to fucking try. You're not? <laughs> no, no. Well, um, there is a theory by J.W. Dunn in his book, An Experiment in Time, that you can experience time, time both forwards and backwards. Now, the question is, John, do I understand it? And the answer is no, apart from the fact that it indicates time travel. <laughs> It's uh yeah it's uh it's Slaughterhouse Five you know being unstuck yeah, in well, time. 
Jesse, when you explain it to me in comic absurdity, I understand it. Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> is the the missing the bridge between us and uh, in, intelligence. <laughs> yes, it is. He's also one of the co-stars of Back to School, which means he's done two great things in his life. <laughs> he wrote a great book that I read in high school, and he hung out with Rodney Dangerfield for a couple of days. <laughs> which, I mean, right. who could ask for more? No, nobody could. Um, now, there's a scroll at the top of this film, and I'll read it for everybody. This is a story of two worlds, the one we know, and another which exists only in the mind of a young airman whose life and imagination has been violently shaped by war. Any resemblance to any other world known or unknown is purely coincidental here in the Twilight Zone. No, that last part was not. <laughs> <laughs> I love the line. It actually points to, because there's a there's a to- thing at the top of the commentary that I thought was awesome, is that he's like, the creators of this film described the, uh, described, uh, the movie as a stratospheric joke. <laughs> That last line indicates of just like, yeah, we're, we're kicking shit around here. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I do like it when people play with that phraseology. But we do get this idea of the grand scheme of the cosmos. And he, this, there's a discussion within the grounds of the importance of matters up there, matters down there, matters of the head, matters of the heart. And our example for today, John, submitted for your approval a squadron leader, Peter Carter, of an RAF pilot, is badly damaged and is flying his bomber over the English Channel, only talking to a woman named June at a base off the coast of England, here in the Twilight Zone. No, yeah. um, <laughs> um, no yes, we are seeing a pilot flying a plane, a Blancaster bomber. He doesn't um, even seem to be flying it at that point. Well, no, he's he's trying to, at this point, like give navigation points, send a telegram to his mother, and then flirt with June. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like he's he's he's, he's up. You know, you, the 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 set decoration for that plane is like, my God, how is that yeah. flying? Well, There's we know fire how it's, all over in the background. <laughs> we know how it's definitely not flying because flying officer Bob, Bob is dead. Bob is dead. Oh my God. He's dead, Jim. He's dead. <laughs> he's dead, Peter. <laughs> yes, Bob is dead. He's dead. And, he's, uh, he's pale-faced. I mean, what a striking way to start. Uh, you know, let's, get, let's go from the cosmos to just... Uh, just dead hell. guy mustache. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dead guy burning inferno of a plane. Yeah. And, and and there's your there's your star. And that humor is meant to alleviate the fact that there is a stark reality you are seeing here that you are not going to see in propaganda films during the war. Mm-hmm. This is only possible through a visual scheme after the war is done uh, in terms of its approach. Um, very, very bleak the other way. Yeah. <laughs> like, like th- genuinely, it does feel like imagery you'd see out of a world war one movie coming out of the states it's crazy um, like a like an all's quiet on the western front that kind of vibe or even like something that would have probably come out of john ford at a certain point at this time or definitely john houston if he were making war movies at this point like th- that kind of brutality and uh we we get this this conversation where basically june and peter are falling in love over the radio and G G George G George G George G George. No, it's P Peter. 
and he's just he's just quoting uh, poetry. Uh, poetry. <laughs> he's just uh, talking. He's crazy. He's he's like looking. He knows he's gonna die. He doesn't have a parachute. He his his friend. He had all all like he's he had all his men bail out before. He knows he's gonna die, and yeah. he's just talking to this girl and falling in love. I mean, like he's looking death in the face, and he's like, oh man, this girl is just yeah, something else. Yeah. But he's not sure at first because he goes, June, are you pretty? <laughs> June goes, well, I'm, I'm pretty okay. Can you hear me as well and as she, I hear you? <laughs> and she, you know, and she is pretty, especially uh, according to uh, the cinematic law of the male gaze. There's, there's yeah, a, a yeah, wonderful, yeah. it's, it's an interesting uh, point there where it's that back and forth between the close up of him and the close up of her where she's lit in this sort of way where like her her forehead kind of goes off into darkness and you, and she's soft she's so soft focus where it's like f- the focus focal point is like maybe an inch like inside of her head so yeah. she's soft but then you see him and he's just p- perfectly crisp and clear and it's like oh that's you know that's that's that making her seem like this more dreamlike making it's that classic example of of the male gaze yeah and what what i find interesting you mentioned deep focus here in a second because i want to i want to address that but you mentioned deep focus this is a movie that is accomplishing a kind of a miracle in terms of the slow the slow stock speed and deep focus pulling on technicolor and deep focus this is something that cardiff was a master at yeah brilliant i mean it's it's beautiful right off the bat. I mean, like yeah. this, like her in that control room and that kind of dolly around with that red blinking light in the background, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. just like, it's just like gorgeous. You're like, all right, I'm yeah. I'm here for it. Yeah, and it, what is interesting is that they're they're playing on the the male gaze from a perspective. But I don't. I'm trying to figure out how to describe the way I first I saw this when I was watching the movie for the first time. Is like, it's not meant to like do the same thing that American films do. It it because it, it doesn't feel like it's coming out of a place of sexual attraction. It's mainly coming out of just like this wartime era romantic. I think it's idea. yeah. I think it's also. I think there's a certain level of. Uh discretion involved in it you know where i feel like i I feel like a lot of that like soft focus is like well we want her to you know you don't want to show your actress with wrinkles all over her face you know and blemishes you want her to and 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 i guess that does that does come from like a male gaze but then it's also like maybe in trying to serve the the self-image of the woman, but then it's like, why should she feel like she has to be, you know, it's a whole, well, it's all it, rabbit hole. It, it's a rabbit hole that goes into the discussion of age uh, discrimination in the industry, as well yeah. as the beauty standards that were held up then that are unfortunately still held up today that need to fucking. Well, speaking of age discrimination, uh, you know, at the, it's a, this beginning point that we hear, uh, uh, Peter is 27 years old. <laughs> Not David Niven's like 36 <laughs> at the time or whatever, 34. Yes, yes, and but how are you? Who, who, who really cares, John? He's who lived, really cares? <laughs> he's lived a life too. It's like, I don't believe you're 27, man. That's crazy. Is it the, is it the mustache that's throwing you off, old boy? <laughs> yeah, it is. It oh, is. that's that's a damn shame. I really <laughs> thought that this would really help me kind of look like a dap, 
dapper, dashing young man who's going to fly off into the distance, but apparently it makes me look like a creepo. <laughs> Do you <laughs> no, have I John Waters it. in your land now? <laughs> <laughs> he looks very handsome. He's a very handsome man. Oh, yes, he is very much so, yeah, but he's not 27. I like that mustache. He is in his 30s. Yeah. Um, now, the, before we move into, the, into heaven here, because we're still in Technicolor land, my immediate impression with watching this scene too, John, I think we can... Um, address the marvel the marvel elephant in the room i don't know when the last time is that you saw captain america the first avenger but the inverse of this scene is basically the final interaction between steve rogers and peggy carter i knew it uh captain america first avenger i knew i knew pal and pressburger stole that idea from somewhere (laughs) i knew it son of a gun (laughs) you you know this is what i found out that um, there was this gentleman named Joe Johnson. Now, he made the third <laughs> Jurassic Park movie, which didn't feature our friend Richard. And we thought that was an injustice. So we went forward in time. And we found <laughs> out the secrets of Marvel. And we went back in time. And we put in the, inver- the, the, the original version that we clearly would have designed on our own anyway. We and flipped we, it on its head. It was a, yes, exactly. It was a commentary we, on a movie that will come out in six, 70 years. <laughs> we really wanted to give a young... Uh, hyped up little boy from New York named Martin, the uh, the gumption to be able to point to the Captain America and say that this is not cinema. It's a, it's a <laughs> amusement my, park. It's a theme park. <laughs> which, incidentally, my future wife will end up editing his movies for him, but this is another story entirely. <laughs> <laughs> this has been future traveler Michael Powell out. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Oh, we'll see you again soon. I, I, oh, don't worry. I, I'm going to tell you how I stole everything from Thor Ragnarok and put it into Black Narcissus. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. I, I look forward to that. Yeah. Now so we, th- are, we are put into heaven, though. Now. <laughs> well, yeah. He bails. Right. Yeah, he bails. He jumps through he, into he jumps the fog. Through the fog. Yeah. The Which is that shot? Fog. Yeah, that pea soup fog. That shot is great. I was yep. wondering how they did that, and then it kind of pulls back and you can see that it's probably like dry ice over a map. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is not too dissimilar from that opening shot where we're pushing down in on earth and we yeah. see that black, that like some kind of smoke clearly encompassing to look like atmospheric clouds. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's something that like, if you watch it on an HD TV, it looks fucking beautiful. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Lo- it's, it's beautiful how they just composite these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is. It's you don't need a computer, John. You don't need a computer. Sometimes you just need the things that you could find at a craft shop. Uh, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> Except not that. Well, my craft shop though has industrial elements that your craft shop probably does not. <laughs> you can't get these from U.S. <laughs> constructive things. <laughs> yeah, everything back then uh, had lead in it, and it was <laughs> intensely toxic because they didn't have any codes to say, exactly. "Hey, don't do that." Exactly. That's why we're all <laughs> technically one IQ level lower than most, uh, <laughs> because we were all eating the lead that we were using for our. We had lead parties where you just go in and lick <laughs> a box of lead. <laughs> it was great fun. Great fun. Yep. So our um, introduction to heaven is Bob, is it not? Yes, it is Bob. That and he's familiar looking face. For, he's looking for Peter. Yeah, you're like, can't oh, find what Peter. is this guy doing alive? And why in the world is he in black and white? Yes. So, black and white, the commentary alluded to the idea that Earth is something we can see, and since we see it, 
it's in color. In heaven, we don't know what it looks like, so that would be the contrast is black and white. Now, this is the theory that was expounded in the commentary. It's interesting. Yeah, I I looked at it through the realm of things are more like like things are you know how the expression is that not everything is that clear in black and white yeah if you're gonna represent heaven it should be that pretty cemented and solidified whereas earth has many different contrasts and colors about it um down in life that is makes it uncertain such as falling in love when you're supposed to be up in heaven with a bunch of other u.s army guys getting coke (laughs) yeah um so that was my afterlife yeah now that was and that and i i looked at it more within the realm too also of there's something when you think about if you if we're going to go into a religious element of my experiences like heaven if 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 it if it exists which it it uh it would have to be something that would not be of this world and therefore i when i think of when I think of something like that pristine or that perfect, it might be presented with that false veneer of the silver screen, which at the time was predominantly black and white. Yeah. Well, there and are, so, I, there is people um, I've heard. I can't, I can't remember what, who the, who said this, but somebody who said that, uh, that black, you can dream in black and white, you know, there's like, a, yeah. it's removed from reality. It's like things are more, uh, there's, there's poetry to it. You know, there's an, a, which is, and there's also an interesting idea of maybe the expression of this thing that we do not know is kind of re- like almost like religious in a way, like like in the way that it's like so much beyond our understanding that like we could only what we see, what we know right now would seem as rudimentary as black and white compared to what mm. way actually is, you know. Yeah, it's like through um, this lens of like, uh, a, of a of a of like s- constricting the 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 viewpoint to like a focal point, like through this constriction and this like penance and this sort of like like a like the the st- you know what I mean? It's like this dogmatic sort of like strictness, and then that's your entry level into this sort of thing in a way. Right. I don't know. It's just like not not literally but like there's a symbolic you, well, you're feeling. bringing up you're bringing up strictness you also that would indicate rules yeah and something that's interesting is is that this film has a place that we need to go to that's following a rule very specifically and that rule is keep to that ledger yeah whereas down below that world is full of rules but that doesn't mean it's full of the same rules and it doesn't mean that some of those rules that are up there exist down here so it's uncertain it's unpredictable up there pretty pretty clear what's supposed to be up there by the indications of what heaven is foretold to be um or or the afterworld or whatever you want to refer to it as yeah it's very Um, yeah it's very clean very very modern mm -hmm. yeah Uh, you get the french guys coming in Commentary pointed out that it looked not too dissimilar from the social, the socialistic angle that Britain would be approaching in the post-war world. Uh, a little bit more bureaucratic, um, a like little bit more 
yeah Soviet now, brutalist architecture i think they're i don't think they're going that far oh, okay. <laughs> um but anyway no so yeah we are up in heaven peter is not there we see richard attenborough come up and sign in um and uh, you know you'd never think seeing that dashing young lad who represents the eternal hope of youth that is lost during war to then go on to murder other people in turn by way of his dinosaur park but that's what happened <laughs> and also he made gandhi but <laughs> but really murdering people at his dinosaur park <laughs> um and uh and then we also get this american squadron that comes in with to to get a coke out of a coke machine and apparently there was a fight between uh Youngi and powell over this about like Youngie felt it broke away from the moment Powell wanted it in. I will say that that Coke thing does kind of lend itself to the idea that we're not taking this as seriously as you might think. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean we're not sincere, but it's look, you know, it's heaven. Like we'll, we'll show this version of America here because we're going to show another version of America here in a minute. That's a little bit more sincere, but let's have some fun first. Yeah. And it's not it's not uncalled for or unquestionable. Like it's it's pretty fair. <laughs> like you know, like Yeah, it seemed like uh want a Coke. <laughs> it seemed like uh Powell was like kind of trying to offset the design with as much lightheartedness and comedy as possible because the design is a very uh Heavy. Rigid and yeah, it's rigid. It's mechanical. Yeah, looks 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 not too dissimilar from like a Metropolis in certain regards. Yeah, um, so obviously not as not as expressionist. Much more, much more like a deco painting that was given a little bit more flavor. <laughs> yeah, um, and we're clearly realizing that Peter is missing. Peter wakes Bob's up waiting and, for him. Bob's waiting for him. He's not coming. And he's like, I'm sure sure he's going to come because he, there's no way he didn't die. And he talks to the head angel played by Kathleen, Kathleen Byron, who would end up playing Sister Smith. I always forget her fucking name in Black Narcissus. Sister Ruth. Sorry, Sister Sister Ruth. Ruth. Sister Ruth in Black Narcissus. And he's just like, yeah, no, no, listen, madam, my friend has not arrived. And he's like, well, are you sure? Because uh, I'm pretty sure I'm sure because we never make a fucking mistake here in heaven. The last, <laughs> last girl that was here in my job was here for 600 years. Yeah, that's the last time there was a mistake. Yeah. So let's just say she ain't up here no more. <laughs> she ain't up here um, no more. And this is yeah. uh, an idea that um, uh, Pressburger uh, got originally from his time traveling escapades and watching <laughs> the movie Soul. Pressburger's basically going like, "Look, I saw a movie where a guy who wanted to be a, tra- mu- a jazz musician turned into a cat, <laughs> yeah, so... uh, and had to get his soul back. And I thought, <laughs> you know, what if I took away all the fluff here, but I took the concept of a, a ledger in heaven? <laughs> yeah, and I took it back with me, and the, escal- and then I... the escalator." Yeah, and then I knew that this young man named Pete Doctor would end up adapting it for his movie that would end up winning an Oscar because, well, the Oscars haven't happened yet, but it's kind of in the, it's kind of in the bag. It's in the bag. <laughs> Unless Onward wins, in which case I'll be like, okay, well, now I have to watch it. I, I mean, I want, I want Wolf Walkers to win, man. I love Wolf Walkers. That probably should win because it's actually, you know, traditional animation. Handmade, but, man. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but 
yeah, believe right. me, I've, I've heard. Yeah. And uh, but but anyway, yes, the ledger, which again, as you were alluding to, does like, it's interesting. We've seen this as recently as Soul, which is a children's movie about existential crises. Yeah. Um, which, if you thought In and Out, uh, In Inside Out was um, uh, uh, heavy, get ready for Soul because it's going to start smashing your brain around. Um, it's great. And um, it's when so we find out. He, Peter's not arrived yet. Peter's not but, arrived yet. So we go back down to Earth and we see Peter's uh, on. He's he's he floated up on shore and floated up on shore inside of a Terrence Malick movie. In <laughs> uh, I, I mean, actually, like visually, it yeah, seemed like it meant. seemed like I was watching Dunkirk. Did it not? Mm, okay, that's that's good. That's good. Yeah, like it, like it, I mean, yeah, uh, like I'm beach. sure the beach yeah. that was was like right on the other side of the channel from Dunkirk or whatever. So like that's probably why it looks similar. But he's not sure uh, why the heck where he is. He thinks he's in the afterlife. He thinks he's in the afterlife. He's because... walking around. He's like, what's going on? He sees a dog. The dog's. You see a dog. He's like, he's like, I didn't, I didn't know they had dog dogs up here. I'm glad they do. He looks up at a sign and he goes, I didn't realize heaven had signs. Yeah. And then he sees a naked shepherd boy and it's like, well, how often you don't see those very regularly. I mean, that's got to be some, that's very like Greek. That's very like ancient sort of. Yeah. Like, and he's just like, well, this is clearly like, at, least, at the very least it's not English. I'm in, a, yeah, I'm in a, I'm in a motion picture and there's a naked uh, boy in it. This has got to be against code. Uh, well, you don't see anything. No, you don't see anything, and also it's not sexual. It's more cultural, is what it sounds like. Yeah. Um, and but anyway, he talks. Well, he to asks this, him. He's like, "Where do where do where do I go?" You know, he's yeah. conf- up until the point the the plane flies overhead, and the kid's like, "Hey, you're in England, man." <laughs> like, dude, <laughs> he's, he's you're, the, he's you're like, an RAF pilot. Don't you know where the fuck you are? <laughs> even then, he's like, "Man, I should have be I should be dead. What's going on here?" Yeah, and then and one thing leads to another, and he's just like, "I say, is there an American like housing place here, like where American troops would be housed or American servicemen would be housed?" And the boy's like, "Yeah, right over there." Yeah, and it's when he sees somebody riding up on a bicycle. Oh, it's June. <laughs> oh, June on oh, a bicycle with a american flag yep oh god and how how pronounced is that flag and that angle that's coming out not quite a low angle it's like a medium load of medium angle yep. here yep. from the hip yep. and, and, of and their of the, the the natural neutral colors of the beach they're like faded uh uh green outfits and a bright red white and blue baby yeah you exactly. can't miss it yeah exactly <laughs> See, see, uh, John, it, it exemplifies the difference that she's American, and uh, clearly this man who's standing on British soil is British. That's anyway, back to... Back but to not only that, she is America, and this man is Britain. Yep. And they make she it... Is from, she is from Boston, she's, the birthing she, point of the American Revolution. Yeah, there is still is, some wisdom that, that flowers in Boston, isn't that what he says? Yes, so still, still wisdom that flowers in Boston. Also, you clearly fit the description of every male gaze that has been forced down my throat since I was a child. So clearly, you are the woman for me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's inter- it's, it's interesting because they they at that point, England coming out of this war, England was bankrupt. England had no money at all, and it was pummeled physically. Physically, like, like I mean, structurally, it was, yeah. it was coming from World War One. Where where they lost over a million uh, men in like land battle, 
into mm-hmm. straight into World War II, where they were. I mean, aside from the French, I mean, they were the only real the the only defense. Yeah, they were the the majority of the allies for most of the war until America came in and the Soviet Union switched over from being in a, a treaty with <laughs> Germany. Hitler. Yeah. Yeah, to, you know, so so their resources are limited. Are drained. They're limited and they're drained. When That's, they when they brought in Powell and Pressburger to they asked him to make this thing. It's like the, this for the survival of England they need to have good relations with America because America came out of this war as a hegemonic power. America mm-hmm. and Russia came out of this war stronger and better than they ever were before, where England yep, lost its power. It was a world power before then. England, but now, and therefore, and also it leads to certain policies that England enacts that we still refuse to even consider in realms. Now, I'm not versed on how people perceive those policies and what they extended to into today's Britain, so I'm not going to even try. Um, But, digress, the need for that international cooperation to be stronger and that the alliance be even stronger than it was prior, because it's not like we were... There is some form of truce with between the two, because not the least of which them assisting in World War I, but also... In the interest of international cooperation, FDR clearly knew that once he heard what was happening in Britain, that's when he started making different lend-lease deals to supply armaments and supplies to Britain to fight off Hitler and the bombing raids that were occurring over London at a certain point. Yeah. Um, it would, it as, would be really interesting to figure out, like, like to tra- time travel back to pre-world war two and just like figure out like the regular the normal consensus of like what people thought of england well we like that hitchcock fella but apart from that they can go fuck themselves <laughs> yeah i don't know it's such a different world but anyways she's america he's britain and, yes. and they are in love and that kiss is dynamite <laughs> oh my god they just love they're in love he's 27 going on Mm-hmm. you know 37 27 going on 97 <laughs> with this mustache you'll never know yeah. um and um and that's when we we are pressed back into heaven to see a ledger and it's missing yeah it's one off i love that font too by the way that double pen that mm-hmm. they do it's very like uh very feels very that's the kind of detail you're only allowed to do in heaven because you have yeah. time to do it <laughs> Well, it feels very like '60s almost, you know. Like, uh, who's that guy who designed those? Like, uh, Saul Bass. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy like, who designed the titles for Hitchcock and yeah, um, yeah. It does feel like very, very style, like yeah. truly stylistic. Feels kind of like um, Catch Me If You Can kind of vibes. Yeah, like oh my god, one's missing. Like, ooh. Hey, don't worry, I'll catch him if I can. Look at that. Because <laughs> uh. guess who we're about to meet, John, the one and only Conductor Seventy One, played by <laughs> Marius Goring, who is amazing. He's also in the Red Shoes as Julian Craster, and uh, he initially wanted to play the role of Peter, and Powell and Bressberger were like, "No, we've got David over here." And we've got this role for you. And um, if you don't play it, we're going to give it to Peter Ustinov. So you'll call Marius. And Marius agreed. And uh, yeah, he is wonderful. He is a former French aristocrat that was beheaded during the French Revolution, is his origin story, if you will. 
And um, Conductor 71 is told by Kathleen Byron, hey, go down there and get him back. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he's he fallen in love. He's fallen in love, and that's complicated matters. Like, is uh, he, do you, like she asked Bob, she's like, is he, you know? Yeah. He, he just goes, just say what ho to him. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. She's like, is he, <laughs> is, he a, is he a reasonable man, you know? And Bob's yeah. like, Oh, I believe so. Yeah, he seemed, reason- you know, he's a great man. He seemed reasonable when he was, I, I I was kind of fading in and out before I finally passed away in that plane, but he seemed pretty reasonable when he was talking to that lady. <laughs> <laughs> and Bob says, go ahead, Conductor 71, tell him what ho for me. Go ahead and say that. Yes. And then we, uh, he pretty much, we see the transition from black and uh, monochrome to color via this rose that blossoms beautifully in, oh my God. in a world that makes uh, Conductor 71 comment when he's starved for Technicolor up there now the original line that he is clearly saying when you see him reading, moving his lips is one is starved for color up there and then clearly Powell and Pressburger were like no 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 it needs to be cheekier than that <laughs> <laughs> We need to be obvious. <laughs> oh yeah, and that and I love it. <laughs> that scene, the scene that we're coming into, is just so gorgeous. I don't know. I mean, was it filmed on a set? I feel like they made this set. This must have been a set. There was not. It's not like they weren't not working on sets in here. Yeah, you know? Peter and June just lounging in in. Well, the, you, you know where they were filming? It was the Denim Studios, the famous Denim Studios. Yeah. Uh, um, those beach scenes were shot at the Saunton Sands in Devon. Um, and so this stuff would have been on the set. That's beautiful. See, um, people will say they want representation of reality in their movies. And I will say, give me a set. Give me, yeah. give me, give me rear window. Here's the thing. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm conditional on it depending on what the story is. But I would love to be able to direct something on a set that, like a studio. Yeah, I've never done it oh that my way God. before. I'd love to do it. Until then, I'll adapt to location. I'm technically used to it. Yeah, but um, well, we we can aspire to something. Yes, we? we can aspire I mean, to it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's. I think you know, I think you have a similar bent in that I have that that there's a love of uh, of move, movie magic. You know, in the in the commentary they were talking about. Powell being very uh, knowing the the the, tr- the cinematic tricks, you know, and a lot of directors before him would have found that to be kind of cheesy or cheap to have these like sort of cinematic tricks, this movie magic of like uh, what cinema is capable of doing. But 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 we love those sorts of things, so of course we'd want to film something on the set. But people yeah, well, who want to film, you know, uh, like R- Ramin Barani doesn't want to film something on a set, you know. Yeah, I like Chop Shop a lot, though, so I will never give him shit. I love Chop Shop. But I couldn't, I you know, I couldn't imagine myself, or I don't, I mean, I don't think you would make a movie like Chop Shop. No, 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 no. Yeah, like I, I wouldn't want to make that movie. I want to I wanna be able to find the best between both worlds <laughs> because I think you can blend the two pretty well. Not unlike the treasure of the Sierra Madre, where you have a predominant amount of stuff being shot on location, but there's plenty of stuff on set that is clearly on set. 
Yeah. But it doesn't matter because the reality is established. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a good way to blend the two. If I was doing mainly an interior movie, like inside of a radio studio, I'd want to build that sucker on set. Oh, yeah. You know? Or I love, But I love exteriors on sets. If you could do them properly, if yeah. you could make... If we could make map paintings look amazing, yes. like they used to, and like they do an in this movie, to, and get an audience to not point at it and go, <laughs> well, the audience and, should point at it and be like, "That's uh, a set," but uh, it's beautiful. They, they I'm need, swooning. They need to be able to suspend their disbelief the same way they do when they see something like Thanos on screen and go, "He yeah. feels real." I'll take I'll take a an exterior set over a CGI orc. Mm. Any day, you know what I mean? Like yeah. these, like 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 yeah. Feels, the difference between difference uh, between C- what Jackson did initially versus what he would do now with it. Well, there's something about CGI that just feels way more fake and false than in uh, an exterior set. You know, where it's like yes, uh, unless you are using it to extend things rather than to build them. Yeah. If you're using it as the same function as a map painting to extend. So if you've ever seen Radio Land Murders, they are doing that, yeah. and it looks beautiful. If you're using it to build your environment, okay, better have all the detail in the world. Like, I'm talking all the detail, and you've got to firm it in some reality that works, because the Mandalorian uses a digital environment backdrop that's similar to a map painting, mm-hmm. and it, it looks works great. amazing. Yeah. yeah, it looks amazing for that reason. I feel like, um, yeah, I feel like... like uh thing like uh locations work mm-hmm. a lot better with uh C- cg and those sorts of things than like actual characters you know where like yeah yeah characters are characters uh, are a debate i don't know how Gollum works so well in the first lord of the rings but he worked yeah he does work he works in those that those first three movies yeah. because part of it is because since they're still experimenting with the technology they're not using the entire mocap process. It's kind of like gradual. By the time you get to the third one, it's mocap. And the second one is kind of a blend of the two. And the blend first one, it's two. an all digital creation. Yeah. Um, and uh, well, I think well, the, we, we're, we're digressing again. Yeah, oh. we're, we're digressing. That's um, my fault. That's bottom my line fault. is the Irishman did visual effects the best. Anyway, yes. moving on. <laughs> Even um, though, uh, the what is it, the... Uh, deep deep fake people can do or do it things they like redid the Irishman in like way better and like not that yeah uh, I, I, I find that a disrespect to Pablo the visual effects artist on uh, the film who worked his ass off to innovate a technology so I choose not to acknowledge the deep fake people trolling the movie I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll honor you on that one yeah thank you <laughs> I get it it does look better that's not the point I mean you know it in some ways in some ways it is. Yeah. But anyway, moving on though, Conductor 71 stops time for Peter, who is trying to pour a drink for his lovely lady. And he goes, hey, I got to take you back up there. <laughs> and he goes, but I don't want to go back up there. I'm, you know, in love. And he goes, well, that's too fucking bad. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the it does kind of represent this difference between... Like Conductor 71 is asking him to honor responsibility and obligation despite the fact that it was an error on his end. And be like, you know, you've got to balance the ledger. That's your duty. And he's going like, well, just because you missed me in the fog doesn't mean it's my fault. So I don't care. Also, I'm in love and it would be rude to leave her just because I've got to balance your leisure or ledger. So it is like 
the commentary pointed out is dealing with this post-war attitude of knowing one's rights. And I looked at it more in the lines of just like, well, no, this is dealing more with the raw emotion of the human heart, which clearly would have the dilemma of like, well, I'm sorry that you missed me, but this is complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't expect me to just go with you just because you tell me to. Things are um, things things are different. I if I had died at that point. Yeah, exactly. He's not it's not he's not refusing out of arrogance. He's refusing off of the grounds of like, well, no, this is how it's changed. Any other circumstance, I probably would have gone up with you because I thought I was in heaven. Oh, he was for, ready. For a he good was ready to die. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He was ready to go. He's like, "Oh, this is it." Yeah, exactly. It's almost as, I mean, like, I'm sorry, like, you probably should have, like, you know, searched harder. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're an angel, you can do that. <laughs> so, like, he, so he he unstops time. And, yes, he unstops time. And, uh, and uh, he goes to, <laughs> he tells June, like, did you see that, <laughs> didn't you see that rather impeccably dressed man? <laughs> yeah. And she has no idea. Yeah, she has no idea. She can't, she doesn't understand what's going on and he's been knocked on the head so he's been knocked on the head and something something not right must be going on yeah exactly and that's when june has to call upon the badassest of doctors the only other doctor that compares in badassery is dr loomis in the halloween series and i'm talking <laughs> about dr frank reeves played by yes. roger livesey uh, a performer who uh, initially was first in the life and death of Colonel Blimp for Powell and Pressburger and would also be an I know where I'm going right before a matter of life and death. I think this is the first actual movie I've seen Roger Livesley in, but I've known the name, but this is the first time and shit, he's, man, he's fucking wonderful. He's great. <laughs> he's when we meet him, though, he is spying on his neighbors. <laughs> yeah, he's got a as camera obscura. He, as if he were a god. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a god, old boy. You see, the, this this woman over here is clearly having an affair with this one over here. <laughs> I'm I'm looking over this town like I'm a god. <laughs> yeah, he's checking and, it out. And right now, oh, look, there's June. He's kind of narrating his own like exterior shots of his life. <laughs> <laughs> like if we had a movie of our life and we could look at the exterior shots and be like, ah, I said, this is going to be the establishing shot of what's going to ruin the rest of my day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know. Camera Obscura, though, is like a cool way to juxtapose seeing down from heaven, looking yeah. through that little uh, archive. <laughs> yeah, the little like, hole. Yeah, like we oversee everything. It's very similar to that. Yeah. It's, and it's, June, it's fun. June interrupts his little camera fun. And <laughs> oh, that shot, too, of her like talking to the guy who's tending the the flowers which are similar from the flowers that we just saw and then like mm -hmm. that that depth of focus like you were talking about from him standing in this darkened doorway and her in the background coming in this perfect light it's just so yeah. beautiful it's this deep focus that is must have been fucking frustrating to try to capture this yeah. movie taking as long as it does to make like as as it we know sense. from their manifesto you know a, a movie should take a year a good movie a, a, a year if not more <laughs> you understand that i mean i could take i can do what richard linklater did do you know i went back in time, even time <laughs> we stole that idea too. Time 
Uh, this is all. This is all part of that theory of time, which you, Zach, and you, John, don't understand. Yeah, this is you. You don't get it. Like I got it, and that's why I put it in the movie as a little it was, joke. But it was really, popular I'm in just, England. I'm traveling back and forward in time to fuck with people, mostly directors. <laughs> Linklater, Peter, Doctor. I won't. I won't. I won't touch Marty because he was all too nice to me, and I'm not going to ruin his fun time. He was a very but, hyped um, up kid. Yes, but <laughs> Is that Anthony how you describe him? Yes, this little hyped up little boy. <laughs> he'll go far. This Anthony and Joe Russo, on the other hand, they need a little spanking. <laughs> um, but um, anyway, no, yeah, he, uh, Dr. Reeves is almost kind of like, no, 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 I'd rather stay out of this. I'm, we have to... Perf- You'd have to look at him and study him, and that's for the RAF to deal with. This is not my bag. And she's like, please. (laughs) And he acquiesces to meet with them, and they meet at an officer's... I I think it's like an Air Force base, like an officer's base of some kind. Somewhere where they're putting on a, a, a play. Which that uh, entire rehearsal scene is not in the script, so that is actual rehearsing. <laughs> That's great. That's yeah, great because it doesn't it doesn't play into anything. There's yeah, no just an know. extra extra bit for the movie, you know. Yeah. And we get this first instance of a chess game being played, which you is spelled, not too dissimilar from spelled Shakespeare wrong. What are you, his agent? <laughs> <laughs> like, no, well, no, <laughs> that that would be impossible. <laughs> <laughs> no 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 he's him. not in the mafia uh, <laughs> that whole bit where he's trying to teach him to act yeah and he's like I, can i can i do the actions can i hit him <laughs> starts hitting the guy no 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 it's fantastic <laughs> yeah it's wonderful um and the chess thing is i mean apparently david niven was a fan of chess and uh uh the chess thing um it does this this kind of game that has to be played for for Peter's life in a certain like there's certain moves that are being played throughout um, on each end whether well, from heaven or from earth yeah he's playing chess against death right like yeah uh, like he's just he's just seven not seal doing, he's just not doing it on the beach with Max von Sydow yeah or, but no. in a way you know conductor seventy one is death yeah <laughs> you know he's death come a calling and the, the the lure of chess you know. Yeah, that that should be a movie. Death comes a calling. <laughs> Death comes a calling. I mean, is that that's got to be a movie? It's got to be a jaunty reaper. Yeah, just a <laughs> fun, fun little thing. Hey, Conductor Seventy One is pretty much that. I mean, <laughs> he's yeah. got a song in his heart. Um, <laughs> Doctor Reeves meets with them though, and he basically goes like, "No, Pisa, you're going to stay at my house because I already went over that with your CEO. So all you movie nerds don't have to worry about logistics and whatnot. <laughs> kind of like what you do with every Star Wars movie ever. Well, he and, he diagnoses them pretty quickly. Yeah. As diagnoses uh, him with with basically. Uh, what did they say? A form of like seizure. Yeah, like a like a. Our our arachnoid arachnoiditis. Um, which is interesting because they they make a point in the in that commentary to talk about how um, he how well, the, Powell the, knew the yeah. medical like that is. Like those are the symptoms that he would have. That's how he'd figure out what this guy was going through. Everything was just it was just accurate. Yeah, uh, it's it's well, it, 
neurosurgery is something that's still gaining some form of prominence at this time. It's not taken as seriously as it's it's, sim- it's similar to how Freud Freudian psychology is starting to gain a foothold at this time as a legitimate science and not just being discredited by people as mumbo jumbo. Yeah. Um, even though Freudian psychology is kind of gone by the wayside <laughs> in recent years, but you know, like psychology in general period, yeah. uh, psychology in general period being taken seriously is not too dissimilar from neurosurgery being taken seriously at this time. It's also, I mean, well, they talk about, is... they talk about the gains that w- were made from world war one and all of the, in the brain injuries that they had to deal with and how they were able to like learn so much about the brain from like all the, all, all the horrible uh, uh, harm that people uh, were, you know, survived, you know, well, yeah. it's like when they talk about war, they talk about this many people died and then this many people were injured, but like those people were injured, like half their head is caved in. Mm-hmm. And they're still they, uh, alive. So it's like. So, this inflammation in particular, it leads to painful and debilitating symptoms. Chronic pain is comic, including neuralgia. Numbness and tingling of the extremities can occur in the spinal cord, and bowel and bladder, and sexual functioning uh, can be affected in the lower part of the spine. L- Long term short pains and whatnot. But he also does. Cl- he's, got uh, the, he's got the headache on the temporal and. Frontal yeah. and temporal lobe, and then which which he says from his history that he had a slight concussion two years earlier. Yeah, and then so. then he can't see. He's he struggles with the windows and the red in his periphery, the red curtains in the windows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's eating and too much. It's all it's all feeding into uh, Doctor Reeves's uh, prognosis, where I, I, it seems like he already knew what was going on before he even showed up. And he's like, look, you're going to need this operation. But also, you're telling me but that somebody's... he's so charming, isn't he? Yes, he is charming. He's just like... And he actually is going along with the story of like, so, there's a mysterious Frenchman who dresses garishly, and he's talking to you, yeah. you say, but he can only talk to you when he deuces to. <laughs> yeah. And we, and, and we also learned at that point that Peter is indeed a promising poet. Yes. Which... Really, the only time it's truly exemplified was in that opening scene. Although he's reading someone else's poetry at that point, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the promise of something. It's the promise of something. But we've got to keep him on Earth, John. He can't just do that in heaven. We got to keep him on Earth. Keep him on Earth. Doth Reeves sees this and goes like, "We'll say, I do love poetry, and I have not read one lick of your poetry. But if you will have any promise, you know, it's my duty to keep you here on this planet." <laughs> no, wait. Doesn't doesn't he say like, uh, "He's like, I have mainly classics in my collection, but you're one of the few contemporaries that I keep." Mm, yeah, that is true. That that is a good line. <laughs> yeah, uh, something God. like that. Doctor Reeves is awesome. He's such he's so charming. We're just gonna fawn over him. Yeah. At first, when I saw him entering the scene, I'm like, "Oh no, he's gonna be the jerk guy who's gonna try to take June." And then you start realizing, like, no, he's like the coolest doctor ever. He rides a motorcycle, man. He rides a motorcycle. He's an image of a, a specter of something, something happening with that, which is like an imagery that is also used in the Spy in Black yeah. of a messenger arriving in that sorts and. Reeves represents an element of the 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 earthbound reality, whereas Conductor seventy one represents the notion of heaven and the afterworld. They bring Peter back to Reeves's place. Um, he's been put to sleep with a sedative. Meanwhile, June and Doctor Reeves are playing drunken table tennis. 
<laughs> and and I and I'm not saying that to be coy. It literally is. They're having a couple of drinks and they're playing the rowdiest game of table tennis you'll we'll ever so see fun. in Golden Age Hollywood history. Yeah. Like, in that in like a beautiful golden light too. What is that? Yeah. It, it's it's, it's like magic lo- hour. it looks it looks like magic hour. Yeah. But it's clearly on a set. Yeah. So they're manufacturing it, but it looks fucking beautiful. That's and great. then as they're waiting for something to happen. Peter said he would bring the bell mm-hmm. if uh, if the, if uh, Conductor 71 returned, he'd bring the bell. Yep, he would, he would ring the bell. And the, they're playing drunken table tennis, and suddenly time stops again. And it's an abrupt shot if you've never seen this movie because you might think your Blu-ray player froze. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but nope, it's intentional. Next shot, Peter wakes up. And Conductor 71 is there looking lovingly. He's clearly grown affection for Peter in the regard of seeing this man who's clearly in love. But unfortunately, Conductor 71 is bound by his afterworldly duties. It's his ass on the line. I know that you are having a wonderful love affair, but uh, it's gotten to that point where they are going to ask you to go on trial. (laughs) And he... (laughs) They go into a discussion about, well, who would be my representative <laughs> in the court in the court of love? This is like such a cerebral concept. Of it's just crazy. Like, yeah. It's it's wonderful. Conductor seventy one saying you you could literally have anybody. Yeah, like Plato. Yeah, sure, but he also he does also Abraham Lincoln. Him, he is like you've got to pick wisely though because your um. Prosecuting hey, you know attorney. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know how your do you know how your girl is from? Uh, how you say Boston? Well, Boston. the prosecutor he is a, an American Revolutionary War veteran who Abraham was, Farland. Not only was he shot dead by a British bullet, he was the first American to be killed by a British bullet in in the Revolutionary War. So and and the only man to replace Boris Karloff in a role that clearly should have gone to Boris Karloff. I'm not dropping that. <laughs> Abraham. You hear me, Frank Capra? I know what you did <laughs> slash technically had no control over. Yeah. So he's up um, he's up against a lot with Abraham Farland. Yes, exactly. Um so this really will lay the case against America versus British. Um, he gets let out of this little thing here, rings the bell, but obviously it's too late. Um, books that were knocked over by Conductor 71. Oh, wait, before before he gets visited while he's sleeping, uh, Dr. Reeves tells June that they should go along with the, the fantasy they should to for his mental health. Yes, and that's important because... Like, if, his, if it, in his hallucinations he's on trial, then in his mental mind he is on trial. So if we're ever going to help him come back, we have to wholeheartedly support him. Yes, exactly. And that's important because it then leads into Dr. Reeves fully believing it because of what happens to him. The whole movie is... We, like you don't know is this just an a hallucination he's having because of brain trauma from his injury well i would argue that it makes it clear that it is real because it's manipulating the film imagery itself but i understand how it could be interpreted either way it could i guess like for me i made a decision pretty early on i'm like well i mean it's more fun to 
think of it yeah, that way. It's, this is more fun to just assume. And then if I get like a Shutter Island ending at the end, then. <laughs> yeah. What's so fun in it, it being like, well, this is all just brain trauma. Like, Let no. me ask you, what, is it better to be a, to, to, uh, le- die an honorable man <laughs> <laughs> or you know just or live long enough to see yourself become a villain, become a villain. <laughs> yes that, I, see i have mixed up uh, what you call the dark knight and the shutter island <laughs> die an honorable an honorable honorable i mixed up the superheroes with the scorsese so now i am really screwed <laughs> or live long enough to see yourself become the incredible the hulk <laughs> <laughs> you die a hero or you live your live long enough to see yourself become the hulk <laughs> sure enough that that's that's couple going years on later. that's our first t-shirt mark you just, cons- you, you, you just gave us our first t-shirt it's just gonna be conductor 71 saying that <laughs> somebody out there make that um but anyway yeah no they um Dr. Reeves then bursts into a doctor's office going like, I say, we've got to have this operation. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, well, what's your evidence? He's like, well, everything I'm about to tell you. <laughs> like, hey, we're busy, man. Yeah. Like, Do you understand? Like, we've got more than just one important. No, this is a special case. You see, his mind is going completely mad. <laughs> he thinks there's going to be a trial for his love for this woman. Who's and they're having the neighbors. trial tonight, so we yeah, must operate yeah, tonight. Must operate tonight. They're trying to keep him calm. They're trying to keep him in this realm. Yes. Conductor 71 gets him away at one point and fools him into sitting down. Little did they realize. On or the escalator. Realize, yeah, they're on the stairway to heaven. Yeah. And no, I'm not going to play stairway to heaven in the background here because I'm not rich. Anyway, <laughs> um, and actually the name stairway to heaven plays a important role in the reception of this film we'll talk about that in a minute but they're going through they see a bunch of different people like solomon plato abraham lincoln possible people for his defense and in the process he realizes that he's being kind of like tricked upstairs by the conductor 71 and so he runs down the stairs back into the real world in a shot that reminded me of spike lee's shots where he fixes Mm, yeah. the position on the actor but the background's moving yeah the obvious and also the other comparison that i made to a movie that would come out from hitchcock years later is the way marty balsam falls down the scares in psycho the background's shaking a little bit but the camera's fixed on the subject it gives this kind of like weird illusion. kind of snorry cam like yes exactly and he gets back dr dr reeves once again is we must perform it tonight <laughs> and you know but he still goes along with the uh, the illusion and going like, we'll find you good counsel. We'll find you good counsel. What about Bob? What about mustache Bob? Can we, <laughs> can we get, can we get Bob? And he's like, well, I think it over. Yes, you think it over and I will, um, I, I will dash off to meet you over there at the hospital. Yeah. He's like, if the ambulance comes, don't wait for me. Yeah. Cause he's got to get over there. He's got to, he's got to be ready. They, he gives them the notes for everything mm-hmm. that they have to do. They, they know that this is, this is everything you have to do. And he gets on his motorcycle in the pouring rain. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to know, have you ever motorcycled in the rain? Don't do it. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> there's a truck. Cause, cause he dies. Yes, he dies. Re RIP Reeves. I say I'm dead. 
And the great, I love their motorcycle um, shots in this movie. Like the first Mm -hmm. little sequence where he's passing up the American guys, you know. And then then when, you know, during the crash, how they do that. Which, by the way, the crash, the way it's filmed. Yeah. From that first person perspective, you see his yeah. hand in front of the fucking. And that is brutal. Like, that is fucking Ooh. nuts. That is yeah. really brutal part of the movie because this guy who's who we like is like dead. Yes, and you know, look. Apart from the fact that I spied on my neighbors, I'm pretty badass. <laughs> yeah, and but he, I'm going to prove to be a dead. badass in death too because and, of what happens next. <laughs> Because of the way it's yeah, because of the way it's set up, it's like we don't even get a chance to like mourn him. It's almost no. like it's like it's almost like in the movie world, he didn't die. He just moved to moved on to the afterworld. He just like yeah. went even into the, a different room. Well, even the scene with Peter and June where he's going like Bob is dead, like she's reflecting on it. He's in and out of consciousness, so there's not much room to grieve because there's an urgent situation in the middle of it. Yeah. It's almost like being in the middle of a battle, but the battle is for David. Yeah. So they're in a they're in a human emotional battle as opposed to the outward exterior war effort that they had been involved with so all this crazy. time. So crazy. So and, all, they may, for, they, and it all works. For we all the danger, for all the danger that they experience out there, they're not even prepared for what's going on in here. And I'm pointing to my heart for the people who can't fucking see because I'm not doing a video cast. <laughs> anyway, though, um, in this distressed state, also Peter says, "Like, well, I don't know if Bob should be my represent or Bob should be my representative. I mean, he has a mustache that isn't cool like mine, so he, yeah, his mustache <laughs> kind of sticks up and on the edges, you know. Yes, whereas mine it looks like. Again, I ask you, does your future have a man named John Waters?" <laughs> <laughs> his mustache is my mustache um or little richard the or, big trifecta <laughs> or uh you know he could have been a, a a predecessor of uh my own gunther <laughs> similar mustache i remember on a salty summer day <laughs> going down to my aircraft ready to plunge into the depths of the ocean but all of a sudden i saw kim hunter <laughs> that's a shout out to grayson Lowe. that is not an attempt to make fun of the way he plays gunther i'm just trying my best <laughs> to do a gunther impression and it might it sounded it sounded a little bit like 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 georgia yeah <laughs> <laughs> you gotta do the i i think the best way to do a gunther impression is to do like a katherine hepburn impression <laughs> that might be a little too loud for the environment I'm in right now, but <laughs> I remember going down there. And <laughs> a smooth, uh, I, uh, yeah. I I met a doctor who had a wonderful beard, and and I thought about my mustache friend, and then this garish Frenchman came over and said I had to go to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Essentially, and yeah, but anyway, yeah. So, but you can tell there's sort of like a sense of relief in his eyes when he yeah. hears that. Because uh, he's Dr. like, Reeves well, shit, dead. Reeves can be my rep. He's yeah. got my back. That'll be great. And I think Reeves has the same idea because he gets up there to heaven and they've already made the call and he's just like, well, sure, I guess I'll do this. So like, you got <laughs> now it. Now that I know that this is real. <laughs> yeah, you got it. I'm here. <laughs> and we get him to the operating table and that's also going to be where the trial begins because we use that transition via him being put under and we see the inside of somebody's eyelids. Oh yeah. <laughs> closing. It's it's going to be Peter's eyelids closing and then we go down. Oh, and, and also like back. 
that shot of his POV coming in mm-hmm. to like on the gurney. Like yeah. if you've seen pictures of the Technicolor camera, that thing is like the size of a small cow. Like the fact that they were able to do this kind of like crazy shot, you know, it's like almost it, handheld shot. And it's like this thing is like this, like it's so that camera's so big. I, you know, this is it's not too brilliant. dissimilar from Hitchcock using a big ass constructed finger to do a close up shot in 3D of a finger dialing a phone. The amount of excess utilized to get such intimate shots is fucking crazy. <laughs> it's it's insane that they were able to pull that off, but yeah. And they did it. They did it. Those those crazy fuckers. They they did it and now Reeves is going to represent Peter in Law and Order Heaven Unit. Bang bang. Bang bang. <laughs> In the criminal yes. justice system, the people are represented by Raymond Massey and Roger Livesey. These are their stories. <laughs> <laughs> and that set. Yeah, the trial is, set. The trial set is so interesting how they put that together. I think they go down to, well, they also go down to Peter at one point. Um, uh to get a to call, I believe they're trying to call um, June as a witness. And well, yeah, they start early. they start the they start the trial. They introduce all the different the diversity of um, of people that are yeah. represented in there. Um, yeah, different nationalities, different creeds, different races. Yes, everything, different, different everything. Yeah. And then it starts the trial, and the judge uh, um, presents. The uh, prosecuting team, which is Abraham Farlin, and and then on the other side presents the defense, which is our boy, Dr. Reeves. And then they go into a, a, a selection, jury selection, right? Mm-hmm. There's that whole sequence there where they're like, the jury as it stands is um, all people who are being uh, uh, oppressed by... British colonialism at the moment, you know, it's like, and that's like something where I think, uh, a lot of like, like, uh, they, they got in a little bit of trouble and like presenting being so honest about the, the, the bad parts about British culture at that moment. This wouldn't wouldn't have been the first time given the fact that we just discussed the, um, uh, uh, issues they had with Colonel Blimp, um, which again, we kind of went into slight detail with it but yeah um but here it's like they're saying uh, your jury is here's somebody from india you know who you (laughs) are oppressing here's somebody from from peking china here's somebody here's the here's the thing though too if the ministry of war wartime ministry of information is asking them to concoct this story i think even they are aware that they've got to own up to parts of their past which immediately dives into the discussion the brief discussion or longer discussion too of the fact of places other than american cinema in whatever form or fashion they are able to are better at being reflective of the errors of their past than we are here yeah we have a hard time in this country reflecting on our past without trying to brush it with a coat of paint um well it's also yeah it's a it's 
it's like the difference like Asian cinema is much more interreflective and uh, examines their past with scrutiny. Yeah, it's like um, straw man versus like a strong man kind of thing. And I think that they, Powell and Pressburger are good at inner reflection in a way that, you know, I love Hitchcock, but even because it, especially since Hitchcock went over to America, he's not going to movie make a movie that's reflecting, reflecting on America's sins. Whereas Britain has to call it to the pulpit in order to make the case for peace. Well, they know that these are, this is exactly what people are going to say. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, you know, like people are already thinking it. They're going to say it. Why not? Why don't we just say it? We're going to say, let's say what they're going to say. And then let's make our argument Mm -hmm. so good that they're convinced, even though they know these things as well, you know? Right. And it ends up being a more discussion of humanist, a plea for humanity. Yeah. And less about um, nationalities and countries. Yeah. Um, So like, so he says, that's when he says, give me a jury that's, Americans, but not the Americas, Americans of, you know, 170 years ago that you're used to, Abraham, the Americans of today, the Americans of the future, the Americans and, that fought with us. And they're actually that not know too dissimilar from the jury that was selected. No, they're not. They're Only all by, immigrants. Yeah, they're all immigrants. Which is beautiful. Yeah. Because that it is, is America. It's an amazing sentiment that... Sadly, in today's day and age, feels disingenuous given our behavior. And, but the optimism that flows through that piece, one establishes the the intent of the film as that bridge, as we discussed. Mm-hmm. But two is also it does provide an inspiration down the line for somebody like me or somebody younger than us. Like if you have a kid or hit my, my nephew or my eventual niece. Uh, that's how I'm announcing this guys as I'm getting a niece now. Um, and yeah, thank you. Showing that to them as an idea of how another country can see us and how you have to hold up to that. (laughs) Yeah. It's the best of, it's the best of what America is, you know, which is, which is absolutely true and is absolutely there that is absolutely a part of america that it is the land of opportunity it's a land where a lot of immigrants have come and have made a much much better life for themselves and were able to have go from having nothing to having creating a a enterprise a business you know right and it is something where it does come into the line of just like when we look at that imagery now given where we were the last four years or even the last 10 years or the last 12 years or whatever there's a there's a, a sincere desire to believe that that's still true mm-hmm. you know and so like it's not to lose hope but it's to, it's the uh it's the that forever um promise of a dream promise rather, of the american yeah the american it, dream it, the, it, the it's actuation a promise. It's not a, yeah it's a promise and unfortunately it's not a guarantee which hopefully we can get to the point where it's a guarantee and, yeah, and we and um, we're striving for that, and yeah. uh, but it's. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's very beautiful that like even at that time they that, were they were representing it in that fashion. At that time, they were talking about like these are Americans, you know. They, yeah, these immigrants are Americans, and that's what America is, and 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 there, and there, and there's like a pride in that to be found in that, you know, which is like I think. 
a really beautiful thing considering the time period. Yes. You know, it's not so much as important now. I feel like this, this movie is very much, uh, very much just, uh, of its time, you know, mm-hmm. like, I don't it think a, it's it, one of those timeless movies. I, I would argue that its sentiments still ring towards something hopeful, but you have to filter them appropriately through things you can apply in today's society in order to find a jumping off point. Yeah. Like if we're talking about direct references, no, not technically it's not timeless, but it's very Casablanca technically. Yeah. But but Casablanca has values that still carry on to this day. Yeah. There's universal elements to be found in it for sure. Exactly. Exactly. And I think a matter of life and death does fall into that category, especially with what we get after that jury, that new jury selection mm-hmm. <laughs> and the big old gambit that is yeah. played here, because that's when we bring June into the mix again. Yeah. That's this, when they all travel down the escalator and they, they're like, let's get, let's get Peter. They, they all go down and they all come in technicolor and conductor 71 says, see, I told you we were starved for it up there. Yeah. <laughs> now look, all of us in color. Exactly. <laughs> <Isn't it wonderful? laughs> And, and they, um, they and Peter pops his head up from the from the operating table. He's like, "All right, oh, what's going yeah. on?" And they and have that beautiful moment where he asks if he can kiss June, who's frozen there. Mm-hmm. And he he, he uh, conductor seventy one says, "Well, she won't be able to feel it." And mm-hmm. he's like, oh, "I'll kiss her anyway. Give her a kiss on the cheek." And a tear comes down from his eyes. Mm-hmm. And the conductor's like, "Oh, you Americans." And Why kiss a woman evidence. when you can't feel them? <laughs> can't yeah, but feel but you can't they feel see him. a tear and they take that as evidence. Yeah, and then a tear goes down her frozen eye, even mm-hmm. though she doesn't move in time. There's there's a tear that goes down, mm-hmm. and, and you, you just you, it's just a beautiful little moment of them being in love, and maybe in the future isn't certain, you know, as it hasn't been for the past you know four years or so that they've been at war. Not knowing if they were going to win or they are going to lose, um, yeah. and, and and lose it all, you know. So yeah, and as the trial progresses, with Reeves and Farland making their com- their connections and discouragements towards each other's countries and values and whatnot, this all leads to the fact of like, okay, Reeves gets June on the stand by down those stairs. And well, they start out, it starts out being a defense of why they're trying to prove that Peter loves June. Yes. And And they're like, well, how much do you love her? Would you die for her? He's like, yeah, uh I would, but I'd rather live for it. Yes, exactly. And so, and they're like flipped by Farlin who goes, would you give up your life for him? They switch it to be about, they're like, all right, let's bring June in here. Mm hmm. You know, we we can see that you love her, but yeah, does she and, love you? And Doctor Reeves is like this jerk, <laughs> which is interesting on the on the symbolic level. It's like we can see we know that Brit that England loves America, mm-hmm. but does America love England? And that's what they're asking with this movie, and they're hoping yeah. the answer is yes. You know, yes, so they bring exactly. June out. Yeah, would you? Would you? take his place would you die for <laughs> yeah and she's just like yes without like there's no hesitation yeah she just gets on those stairs and yeah and Peter's he's like he's like no 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 no, 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 no. 
You can't. That's 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 unfair. You can't do that. And he's just like, oh no, we're going to defy this whole stupid system. <laughs> we'll find it together. <laughs> yeah, and, and you in my arms, June, and me with my mustache. <laughs> that convinces Abraham Farley. He's like, oh well, okay. She does love him, and he loves her. You know, and then yeah. but doc but Doctor Reeves is like, that's not enough. You got to June. You got to get on here. We got to go. You got to go up to the afterlife. And they like freeze Peter because he's not going to let them do that. So he's frozen. She gets on the thing and goes up the escalator. And sure enough, escalator stops. Because as Abraham Farland said a little prior, there's no greater power in the universe than the power of law. Well, mm-hmm. Dr. Reeves just proved that there is a greater power. And it's the power of love. Yes. Um, then the there's a, there's a moment from the judge, which has religious connotation to it, but I do think it still lends itself as beautiful verse. Members of the jury, as Sir Walter Scott is always saying, in peace love tunes the shepherds read. In war he mounts the warrior's steed. In halls in gay attire is seen. In hamlets dances on the green. Love rules the court, the camp, the grove, and men below and saints above. For love is heaven and heaven is love. Will you please consider your verdict? Hmm. And everybody's like, we vote love. <laughs> Farter. Farter. Tough luck, A.B. <laughs> we love. Yeah. We love. Suck it, Farlin. <laughs> Suck it. <laughs> UK, UK. <laughs> yeah. And yes, and so that um, the jury rules in favor of love rather than law. And... um. They give, they give Peter a new lifespan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I'm like, a, why can't can we can we fucking go up? That's a long. That's a that's a make sure. Everyone's <laughs> like, that's a, that's a that's a lot. You're giving him yeah. a lot of years. Here. But that's what I'm saying. You and I can go up there and be like, dude, like we're American. Like can we're American. Us, can you cut us a couple extra years? <laughs> <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Um, but yeah, no, it goes back to the operating table where. The surgeon says that everything's a success, and Peter and June embrace. They made it. He says, we won. Yep, we won. We won, which yeah. is so we won, emblematic we won, of so much. We won, darling. We, we won, won, darling. Darling, yeah. which is yep. like, it's like, okay, we got you got love. Love conquers all, which is great. Mm-hmm. America and England together in this thing, like, where if you think about it, it's like, how how crazy must that have felt you know being like right on the end of world war ii like wow. this war, war you know i know world war one was the great war the war to end all war, wars but world war ii was was so much the same where it's like especially england where you're getting bombed almost every day and it's like you don't is this is is it ever going to be no, i mean like think about it right now it's like with um the lockdowns because of the coronavirus and and these sort of pandemic procedures it's like you start thinking like oh is this is are we ever going to go back to normal again it's like all it's like a small fraction of what it must have felt like to be in wartime england wartime uh, america and not know if you're going to win or not and th- and the consequences that will happen if you don't win and like how things could everything you love could go away I think that it, 
I think that the reception to this film in terms of being an audience member and seeing that there, it certainly would lean into that aspiration of hope. Yeah. Um, that now my question would be because I have certain matters of the reception in regards to the American end. I don't have much on the British end. What I can tell you is that the British end liked this movie and it was a notable box office attraction at British cinemas in 47. Um, and this was the first film ever chosen for the Royal film performance on November 1st, 1946 at the empire theater in London, where the King and queen were in attendance in addition to a young princess Elizabeth who, well, we all know what she would end up doing. Uh, and, uh, it ended up uh, aiding the Cinematograph Trade Benevolent Fund, raising over one million pounds in today's money. This is about thirty thousand pounds then. It's about a million pounds, to, million and change today. Um, goes into release in '46, and then is released in the same year on December twenty fifth, nineteen forty six, in the U.S. in New York as under the title "Stairway to Heaven." Now, it being attraction an attraction in British cinemas tells me that this is in line with the Archers having some successes at this point. But in terms of like actual reception, I'm not exactly sure. But I want to take a, I want to take a stab because of the fact that It's a Wonderful Life comes out in the same year, and it is not the flop that people think it is, but it's not a success either. So I do wonder, I think British audiences definitely responded to this better than American audiences probably did. Um, but you know who did like it here in this country? My arch nemesis. <laughs> Bosley Crowther of the New York Times <laughs> said the delicate charm, the adult humor, and the visual virtu- virtuosity of this Powell Pressburger film render it indisputably the best of a batch of Christmas shows. The wit and agility of the producers who also wrote and directed the job is given range through the picture in countless delightful ways. In the use, for instance, of Technicolor to photograph the earthly scenes and sepia in which to vision the hygienic regions of the beyond so that heavenly messenger descending is prompted to remark, ah, one is staff for Technicolor rapia. So he liked it. That's that's saying something if Bosley Crowther liked it. That old so-and-so. You, you know that you got a good movie on your hands. Um, yeah, as I said before, it's like it comes up. There's there's this in the movie It's a Wonderful Life tap into coming to terms with the war in two different ways. It's a Wonderful Life does it through an American lens and a very Americanized lens that is still valuable. Um the flip side of it from the American side is also the best years of our lives um, directed by Willie Wilder, which is one of the most accurate portrayals of veterans coming home after war ever put on film. Mm. And I think it's a film that you and I should talk about um, at some point. Cause I think you and I would have a good flip side discussion on this because it's be more, great. it's very much about PTSD and is a very, immobile emotional drama until the final moments when it decides to explode 
Mm. And it's, but it, that's its brilliance. And, um, <clears throat> but as far as this one here, what is interesting is, is that it, this is a movie that works within the same realm of the way it's trying to stop time and dealing with the J.W. Dunn theory of time. It looks backwards and moves forward. This is a movie that looks back in terror of the past and the things that were lost while having optimism for the future. Not too dissimilar from what this show does. <laughs> oh. If there's a mascot for our show, it's technically this movie because it does the exact same thing we're trying to do. I don't think we're doing the same justice to that notion that a matter of life and death does as a cinematic experience. But the idea of looking back on the past and its errors while also taking what we can from it to uh, that is positive to move into the future is a definite goal of every, every film we discuss. And A Matter of Life and Death is one of those films that I think as you watch it and the more... The, the the couple times that I've watched it prior to recording, which I crammed this in in a nice 48-hour period, <laughs> I really, really got stuck on the themes of the film. Um, it's overarching themes about love over the matters of the head and heart and how the bo- both of them can work in the same realm um, to guide towards something wonderful. And uh, so I'd have to imagine that there's, even though we sometimes kid audiences of the past and their inability to pers- to see something when it's there. You know, I'd have to imagine there's at least one or two people who feel the way you and I feel looking at this, mm-hmm. you know, which is a pretty solid thing for Powell and Pressburger to give to the world. And they, they, they would go on to, continue to defy that or to, to define their British sensibility and what they would contribute to the industry. Cause after this, they do black narcissus and they do the red shoes, which are two other heavy hitters, mm. two major heavy hitters now tackling darker themes, obviously. But if they're able to inspire hope within this, you know, you've got to watch more than just this one. If you're new to Pell and Pressburger, I'd never seen this one before. I had only seen Black Narcissus, The Red Shoes, and Peeping Tom from Powell alone. Mm-hmm. I need to look through everything now. I'm very, very invested on Powell and Pressburger at this point. Um, and as far as things that carry on into today with this film, you know, I've discussed a couple of references up at the top and whatnot, but. The whole concept of death swiping in and intervening with something of an earthly nature is still present to this day. And I'm not talking about angels in heaven. I'm talking about death personified in its own fa- in whatever fashion coming down mm-hmm. to intervene. And also the gambit stakes of life versus love or life and love and what we do for love. Um, and recognizing what that true love really is which is a very tough thing to suss out on an individual level. But once you figure it out, something like a matter of life and death will probably speak to you even further than it does to somebody like me who still hasn't figured it out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like there's something that this film is able to tap into for any range of expression. 
Well, maybe it's all, it's, it's tapping into the idea that we're always in the process of better figuring it out. You know, that the more you live, the more you learn. I think we are all in our own way, Dr. Reeves. I think we're all in our own way, Abraham Farlin. Yeah. I think we're all in our own way, Peter. And in a lot of ways, we're also June. And some of us are a Conductor 71, which if you're Conductor 71, you may want to just take a chill pill before you come to my house. But <laughs> yeah, I think we are. A little, little too excitable for my taste, but, you know, I like the energy you're given, so I'll dig it. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Crazy um, guy. It's, it, it's, it's all. It's uh, just the fact that he shows up unannounced. Like, that's just rude. <laughs> he's just doing his job, you know? I, I understand that. Actually, this is a comparison to the modern day that I thought was interesting. Because of the way Conductor 71 is popping in on him, going like, you've got to go up to heaven with me. Mm-hmm. American Werewolf in London has his dead best friend going and telling him, you've got to go kill yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you're going to turn into a werewolf and kill other people. I'm like, well, that's, <laughs> I don't know if Landis was going for that exactly, but that's <laughs> interesting to think about. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, yeah, I think it's a beautiful, um, beautiful little movie about, what how hard it is to uh to get over the past you know how hard Mm -hmm. it is to forgive how hard it is to to recognize love when you find it and how hard it is to to hold on to love when circumstances beyond your control are at work to 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 take it away to like to negate it to make it feel less than yeah um that's really good. <laughs> Sorry. That's really good. Um, it's a beautiful movie. It's a beautiful movie. Um, I wish I had an even more intelligent way to put it. Um, it kind of also lends into that element of empathy that I've been kind of stuck on for the past couple of months in regards to how another country sees us or how another country looks inward at itself. And I think it's an even more important teaching tool in that regard nowadays, especially when if, if, if this, if these two filmmakers have the audacity to be honest with themselves in the place that they live in, it's a lesson that we need to see more of. I know it feels like we see the lesson set all the time, especially during award season, talking about more like consistently and not just to get a gold statue. Yeah. Maybe to, cause this movie, by the way, did not get an Oscar of any kind. Uh, won an Oscar at a Danish fest, or won, a, won an award at a Danish festival, did not get an Oscar nomination of any kind. So, you know, I, I, I think that this is like, this is a kind of creativity with a deep meaning behind it that, you know, I want to read the last tenet of them, um, or the, the tenets again. I want to read all five tenets of the archers because I think we're still striving for this to this day. Do you want to switch? Do you want to switch off? Yeah, I'll do the first one. You do the second. We'll get to the end. Yeah. We owe allegiance to nobody except the financial interests which provide our money, and to them the sole responsibility of ensuring them a profit, not a loss. Number two. 
Every single foot of our films is our own responsibility and nobody else's. We refuse to be guided or coerced by any influence but our own judgment. Number three. We, when we start to work on a new idea, it must be a year ahead, not only of our competitors, but also of the times. A real film from idea to universal release takes a year or more. Number four. No artist believes in escapism, and we secretly believe that no audience does. We have proved, at any rate, that they will pay to see the truth for other reasons than her nakedness. Number five, at any time, and in particularly at the present, the self-respect of all collaborators from star to prop men is sustained or diminished by the theme and purpose of the film that we are working on. We've discussed five points that lend into the authenticity that I would argue, John, you can see both in an art house movie and in a blockbuster because this may be an art house movie, but it has the budget and scale look of a blockbuster movie. It yeah. has the visual aesthetic of what could be a blockbuster movie. I think it's more about consideration at this point and less about what's going to sell a toy or. <laughs> More importantly also, do you want to use this as a tool to educate as well as entertain, or are you just looking for one or the other? Because it can be both. It's Yeah, absolutely. And the Archers proved that with their filmography as we've seen it so far. And we're going to keep going through the Archers as time goes on in the Ballyhoo. This will be an ongoing series. Uh, a matter of Powell and Pressburger or something. I don't know what the title will be, like the subtitle for this. <laughs> but, uh, but John, thank you for coming with me to talk about A Matter of Life and Death. It's been my absolute pleasure, and I so look forward to further investigation into these uh, wonderful, talented filmmakers. Yes, and really quickly, let people know where they can find Antlers. You can find Antlers on YouTube. Uh, my channel is John Strelick, J-O-H-N. S-T-R-E-L-E-C. You can search that in the search bar. Or um, if you go on Instagram, you could follow me at, at J-S-T-R-E-L. And the, uh, the link to the YouTube channel is in my bio there. Yes. And if you want to know how I stole the idea from Antlers and put it into the life and death of Colonel Blimp, you'll just need to listen to the Michael Powell Future Talk podcast. It's available every Monday and Wednesday on uh, the Geek Squad Network, sponsored by Squarespace. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> yes, you, no, you too will master uh, time travel. You can listen to it. Oh, me and Michael Powell are going to go on all kinds of stupid adventures. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. Um, yes. And then as for the Ballyhoo, uh, you can find out more about us on the bumpers on the back end. Um, on the upcoming episodes <clears throat> that are happening, this is technically one of the last recording, among the last recordings I will be doing for a little while to take a bit of a break as I will be finishing up some video editing as well as working on steps for my eventual dive into the world of book writing for a Jack Benny project that I've been talking about for a bit. Um, and But one of the upcoming episodes after this point will be A Face in the Crowd with Henry Jarvis, um, where we will talk a little bit about Andy Griffith clearly not being a Mayberry sheriff. <laughs> it's very obvious. Um, and also there are, um, I have already reached out 
at some point, we are going to have Kev Moore returning to talk about Isle of the Dead. It'll be our introduction to the Val Luton world here on the Ballyhoo. Um, well, apart from the four hours of the haunting discussion. <laughs> um, but also keep an eye out for Louis Benwell coming into the mix with Laura Leibowitz returning from our Benny discussion. We go from Benny to Benwell. <laughs> It'll be interesting and disturbing. Uh, uh, and that's going to be it for this week. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, good night. And remember, time travel is not, uh, it's not stealing if it's called time traveling. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. 